This is a Media Lab podcast. Stardate 47634.44. These are the logs of the podcast Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm just embarrassed. I'm just embarrassed for both of us. And I'm the Machine. We have a peculiar task ahead of us, one where we must journey into the far reaches of cinema and beyond. A devilish machine has ensnared us in its grasp and threatened our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although I must admit we do talk more about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today we must face Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Beyond the darkness, beyond the human evolution, is Khan, a genetically superior tyrant, exiled to a barren planet, banished by a starship commander he is destined to destroy, left for dead, he has survived. Chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round Perdition's flames before I give him up. There she is. Khan! Um, of course, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue the show, since you know the machine doesn't help us pay for these movies. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there. Of course, this is August, so we are going to be talking about the abominable Dr. Fives, a Vincent Price movie from 1971. Mm. Uh, but we are we have a big task ahead of us here today, Dave. We are talking about our first Star Trek film on this show. So the machine thought it prudent that we bring through space and time. The previous guest that we've had here on the show, Mr. Ben Rowe of Scream Scene. Thanks for joining us again, Ben. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Dave. Happy to be here. Welcome. Why don't you, when we start here, just tell us about Scream Scene maybe in general mm-hmm. and what people can expect over on that podcast for the next couple of months. Ah, thank you. Kyle yes. is funneling. <laughs> happy, to, happy to plug. Uh, so yeah, I'm the co-host of Scream Scene, a horror movie podcast where myself and my wife, Sarah, we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them on a master list from best to worst. And the thing to know about that show, to expect about that show, is what we do is we place each film in sort of its historical, cultural, behind-the-scenes context for you, and then we watch the film, and then we discuss it. So when we're talking about these old films from you know 1940-something and you might watch it as a person today and think, you know, I don't really understand why this was scary, why this was significant. We can say, well, actually, here's what was going on at the time that made this, you know, hit hard for people back then and, and things like that. We're on, we're somewhere in the 250s, I think, in terms of episode. I don't, mm-hmm. I've lost count. And we've made it from 1895 to 1959. Our most recent episode is on House wow. on Haunted Hill, which is another uh, Vincent Price horror movie. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I thought it was uh, Catherine Zinich. <laughs> uh, so it, it was remade. Uh, I know. In, in the late 90s. Yeah. 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 Sorry. 
Hasn't House of Haunted Hill technically been remade like a bunch of times or am I strong? Okay, so so <laughs> what you're getting confused on is something that uh, you are intentionally meant to mm. get confused on. House on Haunted Hill was made by this guy named William Castle, who was a like absolute uh, like carnival mm-hmm. barker of a filmmaker. And so Shirley Jackson's novel, The Haunting on Hill House, had come out and was very popular, bestseller. Um, it had not been adapted into a movie yet. William Castle came out and made his horror film House on Haunted Hill, which is not an adaptation of that novel, but the title is extremely similar. So he was basically intending to like Transmorphers people (laughs) and to go seeing it. The adaptation of the Shirley Jackson novel came out a year later and was just called The Haunting. In the late 90s, both The Haunting and House on Haunted Hill were remade. Um, And then most recently, Haunting of Hill House was a Netflix Netflix series that had next to nothing to do with the book. <laughs> What's the haunting? Just to make, the haunting is the Catherine J- oh, Zeta-Jones one. that's the haunting. And the House yeah. of Haunting Hill is a different yes. one. Interesting. Yeah. House on Haunted Hill is very much like, it's not the first movie to do this, but it's sort of like one of the quintessential, like if you spend a night in this haunted house, mm. I'll give you a million dollars kind of movies. Yeah. I, I will say that uh, the, the big difference between your podcast and ours and something that we get criticized sometimes for is that we often don't consider the uh, <laughs> the time that the movie was made. <laughs> we often only bring it with a uh, modern context, but I blame Dave for that mostly. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I willfully accept Well, the last it. time I was on the show... We did uh, Godzilla. Correct. Um, so that was some. That's that's a perfect example because we've done Godzilla on screen scene as well. That's a perfect example of a movie where understanding the cultural context like really helps you understand like why was this important at the time? Because mm-hmm. uh, if you don't know anything about the history of Japan, you can just kind of look at that movie and be like, I don't, I don't get it. What we really need is a Godzilla and Star Trek crossover. Well. Talking about setting context here, then, I think there's a few things we should set context on before we get to talking about the movie. So because this film is uh, about the original uh, cast or the original series of Star Trek, I think we need to keep it confined to that only because it can get Mm -hmm. way too out of bounds if we start talking about the Mm -hmm. whole history of Star Trek. So if we're just talking about the original series, the TV series, I want to know what your history is with the original TV series of Star Trek, Ben. Oh, okay. Well, so my history with Star Trek is kind of funny because um, my dad was a big Trekkie. Mm -hmm. um, And like my mom wasn't a Trekkie, but like she liked Star Trek. Like I think something that people forget is that before the original series, or sorry, before the next generation, when it was just the original series, everyone watched Star Trek. Star Trek was like Gilligan's Island or like Cheers or whatever. Like everybody watched it. It wasn't a particularly nerd thing. There was only three channels, so you didn't have a lot of options right. either. Yeah, and it, it was rerun constantly. Yeah. That's the thing. Like in the seventies, it was in reruns all the time. So you know, my parents watched Star Trek. They were watching Next Gen in the house when I was growing up. But I wasn't a particular Star Trek fan until a friend of mine uh, at one of my birthdays when I was um six years old uh, got me a poster for Star Trek: First Contact as a birthday <laughs> present because okay. he thought I was into Star Trek, but actually I was into Star Wars. So I got this poster. It looked super cool though. So I was like, hey, dad, you like Star Trek. What is this? And he's like, oh, this is like, you know, for the upcoming movie. It's like the second Next Generation movie, which is like the second of the TV shows, blah, blah, blah. And I was then, as I am now, someone who cannot do things out of order. Mm -hmm. Like I can't jump into series midway through. It's a huge stumbling block for me with stuff like Doctor Who or like One Piece that's just been going on for ages like i just can't get into those shows because i can't start at episode one and have you tell me there's a thousand episodes but at the time i was like okay i need to understand what star trek is so i can go see this cool movie at the time i was really lucky because that was about 1995 1996 and 
space, the imagination station, the Canadian cable channel had just launched. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nowadays it's known as CTV sci-fi, but back then it was space, the imagination station. And until that channel had been around for a while and was able to pick up more programming. I swear to God that like at first it was just 24 hours Star Trek. So they started rerunning the original series at about 8 a.m. And I had to be at school for 9 a.m. But I lived like a five minute walk from mm. my elementary school. So I just watched an episode of Star Trek, the original series in the morning every day before school uh, for like, you know, however long at 79 episodes. So the 79 you know days yeah. that it takes to rerun the show or whatever. And that's that's how I got into Star Trek. So that was, you know, 30 years ago, yeah. well, like 36 years ago now. And so and I've been a big Star Trek fan ever since. As a little kid and everything, was this something that you were like into or was it just something like I'm, I'm doing this for like uh, oh, I don't know, research um, reasons? Like, are we actually right, getting sure. into it? No, I mean, I got into it. Right. I think that the big mistake, like the thing that sealed my fate and probably drove my parents crazy is, you know, I started watching the show. I got way into it. I was six. So like when you're that young. You, you aren't particularly like cognizant of like, oh, the, the sets look fake mm -hmm. or whatever. Like your imagination fills in those details for you. But I think what really sealed my doom is that Christmas then, my dad's best friend got me a copy of the first edition of the Star Trek Encyclopedia for Christmas, which was a big thick book that existed in the days before like, you know, online wikis, yeah, right? Where that's, yeah. that's how we look up everything now. And so... I was a voracious reader as a kid. I was one of those kids who like, if you sat me down to eat breakfast, I would start like reading the ingredients on the back of the cereal box just because I wanted to have something to read. So I read the Star Trek encyclopedia like cover to cover, which meant that suddenly my head was filled with all kinds of bullshit because I, I, I remember anything I read. I don't mm. remember everything that's said to me, but if I read it, I'll, I'll retain it. And so suddenly I was this kid walking around being like, did you know that in, in 2254, Captain Christopher Pike was captain of the Enterprise and not Captain Kirk? Like, Blah, 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 right? So from then on, I was just like deep, deep into it. And I've, I've not been able to pull myself out of that <laughs> ever yeah. since. See, uh, I, I, can, I can see Dave rolling his eyes over here because he thinks anybody who likes something is stupid. <laughs> so um, <laughs> is that wrong? Am I saying something out of turn? We like something. Oh, we like stuff, you know, I yeah, like yeah. to eat food as nourishment you know that's not stupid mm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> very pragmatic approach yeah. to liking things how about uh, how about you dave though what is your any experience with uh, or background with the original series of Star well Trek? I, I think next generation was at its peak when i was in high school was that mid 90s early 90s the show is on reruns my parents interestingly enough i remember had a leonard nimoy uh lp which is really fucking strange. Oh yeah. <laughs> have you? Have, did you? Did you ever we listen to his LP? Right. Because it's not like now where you just have this infinite catalog of digital music. I think there's probably like, his rendition of "If I Had a Hammer" is something to behold. <laughs> if you um, heard so it, uh, you know, I, I think I think I'm aware of Star Trek throughout my life. However, as far as the show itself, instead of yeah waking up every day like Ben to watch it. I would have seen these when they when it happened upon them in reruns and I've watched them not in order but you know random assortments of of episodes. I've known from early age that uh, our Canadian compatriot uh, William Shatner uh, it has a particular mm -hmm. cadence and way yeah. of speaking that Leonard Nimoy um, invented the Vulcan and the rest of it uh, <laughs> is not something that I've 
really been a fanboy of. I also wasn't allowed to watch a lot of TV. So Next Generation was more, I don't know, it's just what was happening. So all those movies came out and I had mm -hmm. also watched sporadic episodes of that show, but the movies are great because in high school, you go watch a, a neat sci-fi where you know the characters and they have a lore behind it. It's always going to be a home run. Well, that, that's what I think is so fascinating about Star Trek in general is that it has essentially become, whether you want to call that like our, our, our uh, cultural myth or tall tales or whatever it happens to be, I would argue that the vast majority of people in North America, even if you have never watched an entire and an, even a second of the original series, still know oh, yeah. something. Beam me up, yeah. Scotty. You still know the Vulcan death grip. You still know that kind or of like, stuff. Uh, it just has permeated yeah, the yeah. culture. Right. You, yeah, you you have like an awareness of it. I think um, as a fan of the original series, one of my biggest pet peeves is I people are more aware of what I call the, the SNL version of the show right. than like the actual show, um, like the J.J. Abrams movies with Chris Pine in them. I would actually say that those are based on the SNL versions sure. of the characters more than they are based on the original characters. But I'd also say that like I think Dave's experience is the average experience. There's so much Star Trek and it's being run on now. rerun on TV yes. all the time that I think that like most people's experience is like, oh yeah, like I've had episodes on in the background while I was washing dishes or whatever. Like I've seen bits of it here and there. I know these characters very vaguely. It's a good show. I enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with it. But like, you know, it's just kind of a thing that exists, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's kind of the average person's level of experience with it i briefly dated another robot that would cosplay as the enterprise i have a kind of a weird history i think with the original series because ben i know that i'm a bit older than you are but like my brother was into the original series specifically at least when i was growing up i know that it was being rerun Saturday afternoons on one of our local stations, a CTV station or something like that. Mm -hmm. So by osmosis, I had seen, I'm going to say, at least a couple dozen of the original show. But he was into it. He was into it. And they'd only seen a few of like the next generation shows. Although one of my best friends in school, like he was obsessed with it. So I feel like I knew everything that was going on because he would tell me about it at <laughs> school the next day. He was like, this is what happened. Let me tell you everything that's going on. That's a lot like my experience with Game of Thrones. Uh, mm -hmm. I've never read those books or seen that show, but I had a friend who read the books, books before there was a show. Right. And he would like tell me, like, like you'd ask, you know, the way that you'd ask someone like, hey, what's going on? You know, and someone would tell you an anecdote about their day. He would tell me an anecdote about what he just read in the book. So I got this like mm -hmm. play by play, like live tweet, like, you know, you, like, kind of, you will not believe what's going on in Westeros right now. Well, yeah, so like I knew the story without having read the books by the time that Have you like have out. you read the books? No. No, I've oh, never managed have, it. Yeah. The first time I read the end of the first and this must be how people experience TV show, but I almost dropped the fucking book cuz George R R Martin's doesn't fuck around yeah. and everybody will die. Mm -hmm. And I didn't expect that. <laughs> I mean, I no. would say the first three books are very well written. Yeah. I'll, I'll just yeah. leave it at that. The, the first, first three books are, are very well written. <laughs> I, I concur. So because I am obnoxious and I, I concur with that make as these well. dumb yeah. challenges for mm -hmm. myself, the second J.J. Abrams movie that was coming up, is that Into Darkness? Is that the... That's correct. Right. I was like, I had seen the first one and then kind of enjoyed it for what it was. But I was like, you know, I don't have like a full deep appreciation for Star Trek. So what I decided to do oh, was... Wow. To fill in Ooh. kind of this kind of uh, black hole. Wow. I, uh, Can you watched just then. make that the trailer of what you, you're just going <laughs> to... What I decided to do, like a weirdo, is I watched all of the original series. Oh, my God. Um, mm -hmm. Then all of the... It's 79 episodes. Well, it's not because I know where this is going. I know where this is going. It's more mm -hmm. than 79 all of the episodes. Original, 
<laughs> yeah. All of the original movies. <laughs> then I watched all of the next generation. Oh, man. <laughs> then I started with generations and then all of those movies. And then, mm -hmm. in, and then finally Beyond. to prepare myself for the second J.J. Abrams movie. So it's in a lot. very short period of time, in this like couple of months or whatever it was, or three months or whatever it was, I kind of packed all this in. I kind of filled in a lot of backstory for myself. And I will say, I don't know if it's, you know, I know people that are not even that much younger than me tell me that it's, it's hard for them to pay attention to older media older TV shows, that sort of thing. As much as I recognize that the original Trek has outdated special effects, yes, some of the acting is kind of goofy, it's cheap looking in many places, I just really love the stories that it tells, and I'm like so fascinated by like the moral quandaries that they discuss. It's kind of like old Twilight Zone episodes, it's like, yeah, like I can see the cheapness of this, but the, the core here is still good. So that's what I was always taken by with it. So let me tell you some stuff about the original series, uh, like in general, and that might help kind of help us set the stage for talking about Wrath of Khan. The first thing to know about Star Trek is Star Trek was created as an excuse to talk about progressive politics on TV without getting network censors on your case. Right. So the creator of Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry, he was a writer on a show called The Lieutenant, uh, which was an early 60s show about life on a Marine base. It starred Gary Lockwood and um, had tons and tons of... Um, guest stars who would later be Star Trek actors on it. And at one point, they wanted to do an episode about African-American Marines on the base and this kind of like conflict between like the, the black Marines and the white Marines and kind of this racial tension. And they shot the episode and the network said, we're not airing this. And so that episode never aired and Roddenberry got very, very frustrated. And he came to the conclusion that um, basically, if he wanted to talk about modern day issues, because the other thing they couldn't do on that show is it was an episode. It was a show about army life on a Marine base and they weren't allowed to talk about Vietnam. Like they had mm -hmm. to just pretend that Vietnam wasn't happening. So Roddenberry got very frustrated. He came to the idea that if he basically, you know, wanted to tell modern day political stories, if he said like, oh, these are the Trelebulons from planet Axeni 8 instead of these are African-Americans. Or if you wanted to say like, oh yeah, so the Federation and the Klingon Empire are having this proxy war on this less advanced planet where they're each providing like this culture and this culture with weapons, he could do that and do a Vietnam story and not mm. be saying Vietnam. And the censors just wouldn't notice because back then it was like, oh yeah, they're the aliens. This has nothing to do with modern day life. And that was the point of Star Trek. It was to sneak in Roddenberry's progressive politics into American homes without angering censors. Which proves my theory once again that so many of the people who run the studios in Hollywood are stupid. I just can't get over it. It's like that's the, that's how you trick them. It's like, well, it's it's an alien. Well, so maybe right. it's not that they don't want to show it. It's just there are rules. They have everyone to, wants plausible deniability. Yes, they, they need mm -hmm. to uh, not be arrested by the FBI. So uh, the other thing is, is it's not so much. I, I don't think people who run studios are stupid. I do think the people who run broadcast standards and practices. Sure, sure are stupid whenever I hear stories about that. The other thing about the original Star Trek is we, we look at it now and it feels super cheap to us. But you have to remember that back in that time, in the 60s, network television, for one thing, TV shows had nothing like the budget of movies, which is nothing like today. Like today, like TV quality and movie quality are very much just kind of interchangeable. You don't really see a difference. Back then, it's like very obvious. Mm -hmm. TV was cheaper than movies. And then the other thing was most TV shows were procedurals like cop dramas or they were sitcoms so they were set in the modern day 
in a set three walls, you know, that looked like a living room. And, you know, you had a three camera setup. A whole scene would just be from one camera angle. You'd have a bunch of bad jokes in the laugh track and you call it a day. So even though Star Trek was cheap, it was still one of the most expensive shows being done on television at the time because they couldn't reuse anything. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't wear suits. They couldn't have cars. Every set, every prop, everything had to be made from scratch, which is why if you watch the original show, they have episodes where like they go down to a planet. It's like, yeah, so somehow, for some reason, this planet just happened to parallel develop a Roman culture like Earth's because of like just, you know, the random probability of space being infinite. This planet just happens to be a Roman planet. That would happen because like Paramount would have just shot a Roman movie and have a bunch of Roman costumes lying around and it was the way to save money. Right. So that was a show where it was the most expensive show on television and they still never had enough money to do what they needed to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the other thing about Star Trek that's important, that this was true of the original series and kind of true until relatively recently, recently, like nowadays, the Trek shows have huge, huge budgets. And so this isn't a thing, but Star Trek developed this specific style of a lot of the episodes are people talking to one another Mm -hmm. about moral issues and kind of working out this, these philosophical questions. And that sort of happened because they didn't have money for space battles. Basically, like there are space battles in Star Trek. They happen. They're here and there, but they're expensive. And so it was like, okay, we can't afford aliens. We can't afford space battles. We can't afford these big things. So we just need to write really compelling drama because we need to write something compelling enough that people would still watch the show. And so the quality of writing on Star Trek was high because they couldn't rely on car chases Mm -hmm. and like other forms of spectacle. So that's another thing that you see with those shows. And Star Trek, I think, created this massive ravenous fan base at the time. For one thing, because it was the first time Star like science fiction was treated really seriously on TV. Um, the original Star Trek had established sci-fi writers writing for it. it had Theodore Sturgeon mm-hmm. and Harlan Ellison and uh, Richard Matheson and, and guys like that. And so you had this ravenous fan base. And Star Trek was also unique because it had good continuity. It's not perfect, but generally, you know, the original Star Trek, like any show from back then, is episodic. But if they said something in one episode, like Vulcans are like this, they would keep to that in a later episode. Whereas when you, if you watch like I Dream of Genie or like a lot of shows from that era, mm-hmm. they just bullshit from episode to episode. Like one one episode, you know, Darren might say, "Oh yeah, my my dad was a cop," and then in another episode, his dad comes on, he's a chef because nobody cares because that episode aired three weeks ago and no one remembers. <laughs> Whereas Star Trek would like keep to that stuff. And because Star Trek kept to that stuff, fans would start like cataloging that information because it mattered. On other shows, it didn't matter. But on Star Trek, like if they said something in one episode, it was still true two months later. And so that whole idea of like Star Trek fans being Star Trek fans being people who like remember obsessively all of this Mm -hmm. information kind of came from the fact that the show was signaling to its audience that it cared. And took this seriously, which meant that the audience started to care and take it seriously. Well, not to go down into this rabbit hole, too, but I mean, there's been so much written about how, you know, Star Trek was at the forefront of like really like fan conventions and and, and Mm -hmm. even fan fiction and that sort of thing. Like Mm -hmm. this is really what started so much of this stuff that has taken over media on the Internet. The only kind of fan culture that like so fan culture obviously predates Star Trek, but a lot of fan culture before Star Trek was celebrity fan culture. It was like, I follow every move that Cary Grant makes because I want Cary Grant to give me his babies. Like that was he wasn't like going celebrity to. fan culture. <laughs> no, he sure wasn't. No. Um, the only type of fandom where the fandom was around like a franchise that really existed before Star Trek was Sherlock Holmes. Um, right. Sherlock Holmes fans like obsessively 
detail things the way that Star Trek fans do. But yeah, the other thing about that early fan community for Star Trek is it was women. The fandom for Star Trek, the original series, when it was on, was middle-aged housewives. And that's why the fan fiction is all about Kirk and Spock having sex. It's true. My horniness doll has been turned to 11. That was the core. And that's why that show became, well, you know, and then the show got canceled after three seasons. Um, the, the network basically kneecapped Caught it. on. It was an expensive, <laughs> it was an expensive show with a ravenous fan base, but wasn't the hit that the network needed it to be. So they tried canceling it after two seasons and the fans like revolted, did this very famous letter writing campaign to keep it on the air. They brought it back for season three, but what they did was they put it on Friday nights at 10 p.m., knowing that the audience was mostly college students and wouldn't be watching TV at 10 p.m. on a Friday. And then the ratings plummeted and that was their excuse to cancel it. And then it became this huge hit in reruns. So the show, the original show ended in 1969 became this huge rerun hit in the 70s and almost immediately paramount was like we need to find some way to bring this cash in on this cow Uh, because we didn't realize what we had on our our hands right but it took them uh the first star trek movie came out in 78 so it took them a little under 10 years to actually put something together basically yeah 79 yeah so 10 years yeah we'll we'll, we'll, get something together we'll get to that because Mm -hmm. the road to getting that first movie made is kind of fascinating and then there, there is a world in which it did, it would have come out before Star Wars, but it did not. It did not happen. But it was technically supposed to. There's also a world where the first Star Trek movie would have been the pilot of a new show. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think just one last thing here, then, before we, you know, jump into actually talking about the movie. This, of course, is essentially a sequel to a TV episode, and I can't actually mm-hmm. think of another movie that that's true for. I'm sure there probably is, but like this is directly a sequel to an episode of the original series season one called space seed dave do you remember this episode at all like do you remember the con episode on the original series the original con episode no i'm gonna say no i know he looked quite different i mean he was so young and richard ricardo yeah. amounts of i mean different different hair yeah and i will say having i actually rewatched of the episode actually this yeah. week too just to I'd be disappointed if you hadn't there is some I would say brown facing going on in that uh, in that episode. It was, that's what it looks like to me, at least. But uh, I mean, he's a he's a Latino actor playing a Sikh character, mm-hmm. which is, I will say, much better than Star Trek Into Darkness, where a pasty faced British man is playing a Sikh character. Yeah. Oh, he's a- they just don't put him in any brown face. But if logically he's supposed to be the same person, person yeah. you know, I didn't come the name Khan? Khan Noonien Singh is not an English name. I did not remember yeah. that movie very well. I forgot he was yeah, supposed I, to be I, Khan. Huh, interesting. Wait, you don't remember he's supposed to be Khan when there is literally a scene of him saying, I'm Khan? I don't like, remember. That's basic- I saw the movie, but I couldn't tell you what happened in it at all. They played this mystery box bullshit with that movie where until it came out, they had Benedict Cumberbatch swear up and down to interviewers. He wasn't playing Khan, even though it was super obvious to everyone that he was. It was the same thing with uh, Blofeld and Inspector. It's like, I'm not Blofeld. I'm not Blofeld. And then he's Blofeld in the the movie. Spider-Man. Spider-Man's. No, you know what? I saw into darkness and i have no recollection except i think he throws somebody very far and that's yeah. it that's all i got that's how little i liked that film yeah i think it's a it's into a, darkness is very bad yeah, it's, it's, not a good movie. it's sort of like watching someone try to make a remake of wrath of khan who doesn't understand what makes wrath of khan go. He, yes that's exactly what it is it's also this is my biggest pet peeve we have a lot of a pet lot peeves of, yeah 
with with modern blockbusters or yeah with just modern blockbusters who are reusing elements from like the past when Benedict Cumberbatch in that movie is like a dramatic zoom and he's like I'm Khan it's like no none of these characters knows who that is so why is this like such a yeah. dramatic moment it just exactly it's, it's something me. where it's meant to be a a like that movie made so many mistakes but yes you were entirely right because the point of those jj abrams star trek movies was they were aimed at people who weren't already star trek fans mm-hmm. they were aimed to get people who were non-fans into them and so there are like in the scene you're entirely right kirk and spock don't know who khan is so for him to dramatically announce it it has no weight in the narrative. The only people who it has weight for are people in the audience who know who Khan is. Who, who know who that is. Who aren't the target audience for the movie. The target <laughs> audience for the movie is people who don't know who Khan is. And for the people who do know who Khan is, the treatment of the character is so bad in that movie that they're not going to like it. So it's like, why did you bother? It's like, congratulations, Anyways. you failed on three levels. Great. Yes, precisely, <laughs> precisely. But yeah, so the thing about using Khan in this movie, like where this came from, where this mm. idea came from to use Khan is you kind of have to start with, with the first Star Trek movie and why the first, like what happened with that first movie. And the, the like short form of that story, because I, I think we should get through some of this preamble stuff quickly so we yeah. can actually talk about Wrath of Khan. But I've only spent... 45 minutes on this so far. <laughs> exactly, Dave. Exactly. So so the the show became this huge hit in reruns. And immediately a different network than NBC who canceled it. I think it was ABC or something, was like, let's bring the show back for a fourth season. And everyone was like, that sounds like a great idea. And NBC was like, oh, we already trashed all the sets. And they were like, okay, ABC was like, well, we don't want to spend the money mm-hmm. to make the sets again. So never mind. And so what happened was in 1973, the show came back as an animated series. Right. Because that was a way to bring it back without having to spend a lot of money. And it was everyone, everyone voiced the same That's characters. Right. Everyone right? voiced yeah. the same character. Roddenberry was still the executive producer. Um, the scripts were by the original writers. Like it was essentially just more episodes. Like there are, there are three seasons of the original series. There are two seasons of the animated series. That's your five-year mission never seen that he one. talks about in the opening credits. Yeah, never seen one. It's, it's an acquired taste. The animated series is an acquired taste. It, the pacing is bad. The animation, it, it's fine. Yeah, it I've never seen any bad. of it. But. Um, it's fascinating. If you like, are really a diehard, I think it's fascinating, but it's not like, like you need to realize that you're like kind of yeah, yeah. making a commitment to watch it. The animated series did win an Emmy, though, for outstanding children's programming. And you know, then the, the convention started happening, and the fanfic was happening, and there was this like mass, right? This critical mass. And so Roddenberry kept trying to write scripts for a movie. Um, they're all pretty bad. Um, one of them involves the Enterprise crew having to ensure that JFK gets assassinated in order to save history. It's like Spock is like the, mm-hmm. the, the like dude on the grassy knoll. Like, like it, it's, it's fucking, it's wild. Anyways, we watched, uh, we watched the film that Gene Roddenberry did write and got made yep. and it was fucking terrible. So we're aware. Are you talking about Pretty Maids, Pretty all, Maids in all in a row? Yes. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> okay. One of the things you need to understand about Gene Roddenberry, like the Star Trek community has kind of like lionized yeah, him. He's a piece but, of shit. Um, if you've seen, that. if you've seen Star Trek, like have either of you guys seen Star Trek first contact, which is the board yes. movie for next gen. Yeah. 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 Okay. The character Zephram Cochran in that movie who like invented warp drive and the crew goes oh, in yeah. and they're like, you're our hero. You brought about the future. And he's like, man, the only reason I wanted to make warp drive was to get rich and have a lot of pussy. That's right. That's Gene Roddenberry. That movie is about Gene Roddenberry <laughs> and who he was that as a tracks. person versus like how we perceive him. Because yeah, Gene Roddenberry was a huge pervert. And um, 
the, there were three women on the original Star Trek in terms of regular characters. There was Uhura, played by Nichelle Nichols, who was Gene Roddenberry's mistress. There was Nurse Chapel, played by Majel Barrett, who was Gene Roddenberry's other mistress. And there was Yeoman Rand, played by Grace Lee Whitney, who Gene Roddenberry wanted to be his mistress. And when she wouldn't be, she got written off the show. So that's Gene Roddenberry. So but anyway, basically a normal TV producer. <laughs> exactly. So he's writing these feature film scripts in the 70s that are bad. Meanwhile, Paramount in the late 70s gets this idea like, hey, what if there was a fourth network and what if we owned it? Mm -hmm. And they thought, okay, we need to have like a flagship show that would bring everyone and convince them to air on our network with us. And they thought, what about a Star Trek show? Uh, This is again, 20 years before Star Trek Voyager on UPN. So they get Roddenberry and all the Star Trek people back to do a new Star Trek show. It was going to be called Star Trek Phase 2. The thing that was unique about this that went on to become unique about the movies, and I think is important when talking about Wrath of Khan, is they weren't just going to pick up where they left off and pretend like this is just more Star Trek. Here we are on the same Enterprise, same five-year mission, whatever. The f- they sort of had all these different episode ideas, and whatever one they picked to make the first one was always going to have the same opening, which was going to say, it's been a few years since the old show. The Enterprise herself has gone through this big refit where they've upgraded the ship with all new technology. Um, all the characters are older. Kirk's an admiral, and we have to bring them out of retirement. All these things to explain the passion of time. Let them update the ship and the look of it because it was 10 years later and, and kind of explain that in lore. And that was actually really unique at the time because if you look at cultural figures, you know, Sherlock Holmes or Superman or Batman or Dick Tracy or whatever, like Dick Tracy was fighting Al Capone in the 30s and he was still fighting criminals in the comic strip in the 70s and he has never aged. So it was this unique idea of like, what if our pop culture heroes aged mm-hmm. and like time continued? Like that was kind of a new idea. Leonard Nimoy refused to come back. Uh, so they invented a new character, Zahn, whose whole thing was that he was like a full Vulcan who realized like the reason why Spock was so effective on the Enterprise was because he was half human and understood human emotions. So Zahn was going to be this full Vulcan trying to be more human as opposed to Spock, who was always trying to repress his humanity. There was going to be a young first officer, Willard Deckard, who uh, was going to be questioning Kirk all the time because they knew Kirk was going to be older. So they mm. wanted to still have like a young hero. He was going to have this old girlfriend Decker that is. I was going to have this old girlfriend who was back on the ship who he had broken up with, who was the like navigator, Ilea. All of which is to say Zahn is Data, Decker is Riker, Ilea is Troy. They're the same characters. Right. When this show didn't happen, they just ported those ideas onto Next Gen later. They wrote a script for the pilot. They started production. Uh, and then Star Wars came out in 77 and Paramount said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's money to be made in sci-fi. Screw this TV show idea. And they turned the pilot into Star Trek The Motion Picture. Which is why Star Trek The Motion Picture sets up like all this idea of like, you know, that movie ends with like them just warping off to the next adventure. And which is kind of forgotten about at the beginning of this movie to a degree. Yes. Like it's just, yes, this we're not going to worry about this, that. Okay. Exactly. Like this movie's basically a reboot. Like it basically is just a take two on the motion picture in a way. Yeah. Cause it was supposed to lead off into this new TV show that right. ended up not happening. Because I mean, like the motion picture, like Star Trek, the motion picture was like, mm-hmm. it made money, but it was not a critical hit. Like the critics really no. did not like it whatsoever. What happened with motion picture, like that's its own saga. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to talk about yeah. that movie. But like, if we want to just hit the bullet points, they brought Actually, just pause on that for a second. Dave, when was the last time you saw Star Trek, the motion picture? I'm sorry. Uh, when was the last time I said something? Let me just pull no. up. And I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> I... I don't know. Motion picture probably saw it once, so it's got to be twenty years ago. No, I have no yeah. recollection of it. 
Wow. It's, it's There's a, a new director's edition that's out uh, on Blu-ray this fall. Yeah, it's excellent. Did you, um, it's absolutely, it, like, it's a very good movie. Did you hear the, I saw a rumor that uh, Snyder Cut was actually Snyder starting his own hashtag. Okay, but the fun fact, the sources for that, mm-hmm. that leaked that to Rolling Stone, are the guys at Warner Brothers who got accused of racism by the oh, actor who nice. played Cyborg. Nice. So... So what a mess. It's basically like those guys got into a scandal and they were like, and, and in that story of like that actor getting kind of abused by them, the story is basically like Snyder stood up for him. The producers were huge racists. So now the producers are like, well, Snyder's actually full of bullshit. And it's like very petty mm. shit going back and oh, forth over at Warner Phenomenal. I was going to say that uh, at least here in Calgary at uh, one of the local theaters, they actually were playing Star Trek, the motion picture here a couple of weeks ago. So mm-hmm. I actually went and saw yeah, it because there's the a theaters. new, that's probably the new director's cut. It might be. Yeah. I don't showing. know if it was uh, or not. Is regardless, it better? Yes. <laughs> I, I enjoyed my time with it. I have to say, like, I don't think it's a like bad movie. Is it a great one? No. I think it's way too plotting in the kind of the middle section. The, the part that you should remember, Dave, is that there is a moment where Captain Kirk or Admiral Kirk, I guess, is being um, taken to the Enterprise. Like it's a little shuttle. They're going mm. to the Enterprise and it goes on for a good five minutes of like <laughs> yeah dude like they want you to have the biggest boner for this ship yeah. by the end of this five minute sequence it is so weird <laughs> they did okay. so long of this docking sequence happening is it weird if i have a boner now let me let me tell you a few things about motion picture real quick so they brought on robert wise to direct mm-hmm. you know the guy who did andromeda strain and day the earth stood still and stuff yeah and they really wanted like this was for roddenberry this was his opportunity to like do Star Trek on a huge budget and have it not look campy and silly right. and like make it like serious science fiction. They were going after the 2001 A Space Odyssey crown. Like that, like Paramount wanted them to make Star Wars and they wanted to make 2001 A Space Odyssey and that like fucked it up. Yeah, you know, incongruity is never kind of what, It's kind of what fucked the movie. Yeah. But they had this huge budget. They had kind of unlimited money to spend on the special effects because Hollywood thought the reason Star Wars succeeded was the special oh, effects. Oh, wow. Like that Hollywood didn't understand Hollywood. that Star Wars yeah exactly so they spent all this money on well, these it's, it's kind of like the people are like oh titanic was a big movie we'll make more movies about boats yeah. that's what we'll do more boat <laughs> movies is what we need to do right yeah, no. <laughs> exactly so like what happened was they spent a ton of money and they had this hard release date that they couldn't change and the movie just like wasn't finished for that hard release date so the movie that got released in the theaters was the um like the first draft rough cut work print mm-hmm. basically um, that the director was like never happy with. And so he didn't get to actually finish the movie until about 2000. Uh, and they put a director's cut out on DVD. And the reason there's this new director's cut that everyone's excited about is that DVD was mastered in like standard definitions. Nice. And they've like, you know, so they, they did all these new things for it, but like it wasn't, you could, it wasn't future proofed. So they just spent a ton of money to do it in 4K and stuff. So that's, that's what's going on now. But anyways, the significant things with that movie though is like they, Robert Wise's wife insisted you have to get Leonard Nimoy back. That it's like it's not Star Trek without Leonard Nimoy. So they dumped a ton of money on Nimoy's front door because Nimoy didn't want to come back to Star Trek. Mm-hmm. He didn't want because he 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 walked down the street every day and people were like, "Hey, Spock!" And he was just so fucking done with that. He didn't want to come back. Uh, he had left the original well, series on very bad terms with Gene Roddenberry. Didn't he write a memoir called I Am Not Spock? I Am Not Spock. And then followed up yeah. with another book called I Am Spock. Isn't that true? Yeah. So I Am Not Spock, he wrote in the 70s yeah. when the show was in reruns before the movies happened, when he was having this 
problem with not being able to get work because everyone just saw him as Spock. And then I am Spock. He wrote in the nineties when he had done, you know, six movies and his bank account had gotten a lot right. higher and he was now cool with, you know, being Spock, right? He didn't want to be a part of Star Trek anymore. So they dumped a bunch of money on his feet and they did the motion picture. It, there's a lot of good ideas in the motion picture. They're buried under these mount, these like 20 minute effects yeah. sequences that were done because again, the studio was like the priority here is the effects. The whole thing, the docking scene that you're talking about with the Enterprise, people make fun of that shit all the time. That is a widely parodied scene. I do say in context, if you remember that like Star Trek was this show with this ravenous fan base and it had just been like in reruns on TV and it had been 10 years since anything live action Star Trek had been made. Mm. It, that scene makes more sense in that context. It's a fan service scene. It's a payoff oh, yeah. to this fan base has been so obsessive for 10 years. Let's like, here's the enterprise on the big screen, looking gorgeous in a model we actually could spend money on. Whatever. For me, right? it, it makes more sense knowing now that this guy directed Andromeda Strain because the entire mm -hmm. movie Andromeda Strain is like just sitting for 10 minutes at a time waiting for something to happen. To, to be yeah. fair, to be fair, he also made the sound of music, but sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but you're right, Kyle. Motion Picture came out. It made a ton of money mm -hmm. because it was Star Trek and people were like starved, but it, it was poorly received. Um, a big thing that people criticized it for was the pacing for how serious it was because people remembered like the original series talked about serious issues, but it was also like a very fun show. Like yeah, it was an adventure show too. At the, at its it's an adventure yeah. show. It's funny. A fun fact about the original series that I think is relevant now that like Strange New Worlds is a TV show, but like the pilot of the original series had a different captain who wasn't Kirk. Mm -hmm. And the network didn't like that guy. And they switched to Kirk for the second pilot. And the key difference between that guy and Kirk, the key network note that they got that was like, you need to change the main character. They're like, we need a guy who punches things. Like you can have all your philosophical debate, but each episode basically needs to end in a fist fight. And if you watch the original series, like that happens. Like Kirk fights people oh, yeah. in fist fights all the time. He drops so you get to motion people. picture. It's amazing. Right. You get to motion picture. There's no fighting in like there's like phasers are not shot. Nothing like it is a completely cerebral movie. And so, yeah, people didn't like that. I mean, it's also like the most basic of takes, too, I know. But it also always tickles me so much about how the original series is always like, we've come to this uh, alien planet. We have no idea if ever, anyone is hostile. So um, me, the captain, my chief science officer, and the <laughs> chief medical officer, we'll all go down. The three yeah. most important people of this ship, we might as well go investigate this. They actually tried to make that a thing on Next Gen. If you watch mm -hmm. like early Next Gen. It's like a, now it's like a, a Starfleet regulation. The captain can't go on away missions. Right. It has to be Riker. And eventually Patrick Stewart got like really fucking sick of sitting on the ship and doing nothing. It was like, let me go on an away mission. Because it doesn't make any sense. But at the end of the day, it's like a TV show and you don't want your main characters to just not sitting be around. doing anything. Like the adventures of like these five expendable people each episode, like that's not mm. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Motion picture comes out. It's kind of a flop, kind of a success. Paramount knows they want to make another one. But they also know they don't want to spend that amount of money. Like they're like, we are not giving. Like Wrath of Khan's budget is like ten percent of what Motion Picture's budget it is. Yeah, it's which greatly reduced. Which, if you've watched Motion Picture recently and then you watch Wrath of Khan, you'll notice because, like in Wrath of Khan, when they go to the Enterprise from Starfleet Academy, right, and it's um, Kirk and Sulu and a few other people in the shuttle, and they go up. Um, it's the same footage from Motion Picture. They've mm -hmm. just taken like whatever blue screen had. 
Kirk and Scotty mm-hmm. in motion picture, replaced it with the new characters in the new uniforms and cut it down. Wait, like it's a, you know, what was a five minute sequence is now like 30 seconds, but it's right. the same footage because they were like, you guys spent a ton of money on that damn movie. You're gonna have to reuse a bunch of that. And then the other thing they did significantly for Wrath of Khan was they brought in a new producer yes. and they basically kicked out Gene Roddenberry. Gene Roddenberry has a creative consultant credit yeah. on this movie, which basically just meant that legally they had to kind of like show him all the drafts as they were coming in and he could give notes, but they didn't need to follow them. And because and- Paramount kind of blamed motion picture being what it was on the fact that like Roddenberry had control. Sure. And we should say that Paramount, uh, two of the top executives at this time, who you might uh, people might have name recognition for, were Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner. So they were some of the two people who were spearheading uh, this. So mm-hmm. they've had their fingers in the pie for a long time. It's mm-hmm. gross. So they brought on a guy to produce Wrath of Khan named Harv Bennett. And Harv Bennett didn't like Gene Roddenberry. Um, <laughs> they had butted heads on Pretty Maids all in a row because Harv Bennett was a executive at the studio at MGM and when he that wanted was made. to make a good like, movie probably <laughs> yes correct yeah, <laughs> yeah. so so he didn't like Roddenberry but his job that he was given was make a Star Trek movie and make it good so he was like you know so I'm not going to bring any personal feelings against Roddenberry into this like I'm going to make a good Star Trek movie and what Harv Bennett did was he said okay I I'm not super familiar with Star Trek let's sit down and watch every episode of the original show and just see if there's something that you know will Stand inspire up. me right yeah what he noticed was the way that the dramatic conflicts on the original show are designed is they're designed around a trinity of Kirk, Spock, McCoy. Yeah. And basically it's Spock is reason, McCoy's emotion, Kirk has to choose between this. the two or like find the middle path, right? And sex. And what? And sex. <laughs> Hands and penis. Right. Yeah. What Harv Bennett noticed was that there is only one challenge on the original series that is not solved by that trinity. Like that trinity solves every problem, uh, you know, because you have those three Freudian mm-hmm. aspects, except one, which is Khan. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy don't beat Khan. They get their asses fucking handed to them. What beats Khan is that um, there's an officer on the Enterprise who falls in love with him, uh, Marla MacGyvers, and she basically sells out the crew to Khan. And then she develops guilt and rescues Kirk at the last minute so that Kirk can go take the ship back from Khan. That's how they defeat Khan, not through the Trinity. And, and then that episode ends with them dumping Khan on a planet and saying, yeah, we'll check up on you again, I'm sure, and flying off to the next adventure. Mm-hmm. And so Harbin goes, okay, you look at the 79 episodes, there's one villain that totally kicked their ass and he's still out there somewhere. That's a movie. That's idea, a movie. right? It was a very simple math to get it to. Like Wrath of Khan is such a huge part of Star Trek now. You know, it's this big movie. Everyone loves it. They've like the last, like I want to say like the last like three or four Star Trek movies are all kind of Wrath of Khan ripoffs. But yeah, people forget that like before this movie, Khan was just like, Khan isn't a recurring villain no. on the original show. He appears in one episode. There's like, oh, what the heck? There's that big like Texan guy that they come across, Mud or something. Harry Mud. Harry Mud is the only guy it who comes appears as a times. villain in more than one. And he's just like a comedic relief smuggler kind of yeah. rogue who's just really annoying, right? But that's yeah. who it should have been, the Wrath of Mud. Well, let's do this. Dave and I, let's go and thank some sponsors. <sighs> and then when we come back, we'll actually jump into Maybe talking a chance to talk. about the movie of Wrath of Khan. I doubt it. Is there any place you've boldly gone? Can you ever well, say things that like you boldly went anywhere in your life? Uh, I got locked in a bar's beer fridge once. What? Uh, Why? Yeah. 
looking for free beer. There's a reason why I don't drink anymore, Kyle. <laughs> wait, 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 stop, 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 stop. <laughs> like you just stumbled into the back of a restaurant no, or bar? Yeah, we were in a divey Irish pub in Sudbury, Ontario. There's probably real yeah. Irish people there. And um was very, very intoxicated. Mm. And we thought it'd be a good idea. We went to the washroom and we went down the wrong door, which led to the stairs into the cellar. Uh, it was something out of Fight Club. And we, it was huge. Flickering, like fluorescent lights. We decided it'd be funny to go in. I'm, I, I mean, I'm picturing, I was blackout drunk, but I'm picturing it with a mattress taped to a, mm-hmm. to a support beam where you punch it. And then we saw a door, a magical door. And we opened it and it was magically filled with beer. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think you know what magically means, but okay. And we went in and just like a shitty comedy, uh, the door closed and it locked behind us. Excellent. So, uh, excellent. Yeah. This was pre-cell phone? No, no. The cell phones were alive. So we were desperately texting our friend who was outside. They did a clandestine mission to mm. rescue us. And we walked out of there with uh, several bottles, perhaps. You stole pockets. from them. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You know that Canada does not have a statute of limitations, so I could I could snitch on you and you could go to jail. Yeah, I mean, it'd be hard to pay back the $7. Oh, there's <laughs> been still interest cry. accrued since yeah, yeah, that time. Yeah. So $9? $9 beer. <laughs> no. no, it was terrible. Yeah, I probably shouldn't say that out loud, but I did. And you'll keep it on tape. That's okay. I will tell you completely off mic, something that I did that I didn't find out later is super illegal. Well, and I could you go to jail to for it. So. Yeah, I think you should tell me that okay. story right now. No, because, that's, that's uh, off mic. That's an off mic story. <laughs> if there's ever been an off mic story before. Wow. Colin Dave vs. the Machine, of course, is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta based businesses and organizations. Uh, with uh, we, 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 we are, are we. brought to you this week. By Pod Power. And with Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, the Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a Pod Power shout out to uh, Dave, pick a number between zero and seven. 47. Oh, sorry. Um, 12? Three. Okay. Zero and seven. <laughs> How do you get? Oh my God. Three. Okay. 31. No, you're doing three. So this week we're about 0.25. to about, we're going to talk about overdue fines. Overdue fines is an Edmonton Public Library podcast. Bryce Crittenden and Carolyn Land host conversations about books, movies, music, pop culture, and other interesting news about Edmonton. It's a very short list, but it's a great way to learn more about what's happening at EPL and about how you can use your library card to access all of EPL's in-person and online services. To listen and find out more about overdue fines you can head on over to epl.ca slash podcast. That's Drama. epl.ca slash podcast. You got to put some full like, explosions in the background. <laughs> Dave, what do you have for me this week? Some reverb. Kyle, we're both very busy business owners and we've got more meetings than hours in a day, right? I mean, at least 24. I, I have 26 meetings today. Yeah. But you can be calm and collected. If you have a group benefit plan that's taken care of by Alberta Blue Cross, your employees can manage their own health, dental, life, and disability coverage online, anytime, on any device. They don't need to bug you, Kyle. They can do it by themselves. To learn more and explore your options, head to ab.bluecross.ca. That's ab.bluecross.ca. Great. 
I yeah. just, I, I know this uh, ancient healing art called a nerve pinch. So whenever I'm feeling down, I just pinch myself and I fall headfirst um, you- onto the ground. And then I feel better when I get up. I need a demonstration. One second here. I'm just going to pinch myself. Okay, well, we've had some time here now to sit down on the couch. We've watched the movie. Ben, as a, I guess, a, as, as a, a way for some of the audience, maybe if they have not seen it in a while, mm. let's just uh, think of a scenario here. Let's say that um, we're at some sort of fan expo and uh, uh, there's a young boy dressed as a Klingon or something like that who rushes up to you with a VHS copy of Wrath of Khan in his like feeble little hands. And he's like, what is feeble. this about? Oh well, how would you describe the plot of Wrath of Khan? It's tiny timing it. Kirk, Kirk's greatest mistake comes back and takes away everything that matters to him. That could be the tagline right there. It's not. I'll just, uh, I'll leak that already. It's not the tagline. What, uh, what were your thoughts on this last rewatch? Man, I've seen, so the thing is, guys, like I've seen Wrath of Khan so many times that I, I don't, there isn't like a lot new that comes right. to me anymore when I see it. But for me, I think what stands out the most to me about this movie now is in contrast to franchise movies today, which is to say, this is a movie about how our heroes get older. Mm-hmm. And about how our heroes make mistakes. Yeah, I'd say it's primarily about age and loss. Like that's basically what yeah. this entire movie it's is about. It's a movie about death. It's a movie about getting older. It's a movie about how do you pass things on to the next generation. Uh, it's about like death and rebirth. And you know, are you still relevant in this world? And what are the mistakes you've made? And people love this movie. And people absolutely hate that shit in franchise movies today because you can see that from the reaction with Last Jedi. Mm. Last Jedi is a movie about Luke as an older character who has made mistakes and is paying for them, and and the fandom fucking flipped their shit and hated that. And nowadays, it's like look at when they poorly, did, st- in my opinion, you did you know, but you look at like Star Trek Into Darkness, which is trying to remake this movie, and all the characters are like twenty nine years old. The all the characters in this movie are like like it, this movie is set on Captain Well, okay, Admiral Kirk's fiftieth birthday. Who gets to be fifty? And be a franchise hero anymore, or, or at least like get to admit it. Or admit, yeah, that's the thing. It's like Tom Cruise is sixty years old, but he's not out there like I'm sixty and like. Yeah, he doesn't. He's my Tom Cruise is the exact age as my dad, and he does not <laughs> look yeah. like you know my dad, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, like everyone is older. Everyone is. It, it's it's very sad sort of movie in terms of just like its tone. I I would say I think the maybe the major difference is this is that in most modern filmmaking, I, I won't paint with too broad a brush here and say every movie, but I think that there is this reticence of being earnest that people really shy away from. It's like, we can't be like so open hearted as to be like, yeah, we're dealing with some hard stuff. It always has to come with like a wink or it has to be ironic or it has to be like a meta textual comment on what that, on what's happening. You don't think that this movie does the same thing? I don't think so. No, I think it's being very open hearted about, uh, about where they are. I think there's a lot of winkiness in this movie, but it's winkiness that feels in line with what the original show was mm-hmm. like. Cause they winked at stuff in the original show all the time. Like people, I, I don't know if people remember like how many episodes of the original series kind of end with like a joke yeah. and a laugh and a freeze frame, freeze basically. Frame, yeah. But like the, 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 the trick that this movie pulls that it does really well is well, okay. You almost have to understand a little bit of something that happened 
at the time out like behind the scenes when this movie came out to kind of understand the like magic trick that this movie's doing. So I mentioned before the break that like they had punted Roddenberry down to being creative consultant. He was not super happy with this. Mm -hmm. Uh, So even though Wrath of Khan is a very good movie, he took every opportunity to complain about everything just as like kind of a petty, you know, they had given him permit. You have permission to give notes. So he used what little power he had left to give all of the notes. So like Roddenberry really hated the uniforms on this show, Mm -hmm. on this movie, because he thought they looked too militaristic. He really didn't like the like super naval military feel of it, even though in his pitch to the network for the original show. What Roddenberry had said was Star Trek is Horatio Hornblower in outer space. And Nicholas Meyer, who wrote and directed this film, agreed entirely. And if you are a big like naval movie fan, like master and commander kind of stuff, that's the vibe of this movie. This movie has a very like swashbuckler mm-hmm. naval movie well, vibe. Um, to put, bring another thing into it, like it's hard not to see Khan's like mania basically being Moby Dick. Like he is obsessed yeah. with getting Captain He Kirk. quotes Moby Dick yeah. at, the, at the end of the movie. He quotes Moby Dick. It also has like kind of a submarine movie vibe at the end sure. when they're in the, the nebula, right? But anyway, so, so Roddenberry complained a lot <laughs> is what I'm trying to get at. Um, so at some point, while the movie was still in production, it leaked to the fans that Spock was going to die. The reason Spock was going to die uh, was because the producers wrote that into the script because they knew two things. They knew one, they needed to have Leonard Nimoy and two, Nimoy hated Star Trek. So they were like, okay, you know what? We're going to give you a cool death and then you'll be done with Star Trek forever, but you'll get this really good death scene. And Nimoy was like, great. That was how they convinced Nimoy to come back this time. Like they convinced him the last time with a lot of money. This time it was like, what if you have a really great death scene? So it leaked to the fan base that Spock was going to die. Roddenberry's the guy who leaked it because he wanted to get the fans angry. And he thought if he could get the fans angry enough, Paramount would give him control back. Like, ah, your movie's in trouble and I'm the only one who can fix it. So Nicholas Meyer, who was the director and wrote a draft of the screenplay, he knew this had happened. So they added something to the movie that wasn't in the draft before that. Can you guess what that is? No. They, uh, they added the Kobayashi Maru. Oh, uh, actual Kobayashi Maru. Hmm. So the training simulation at the start where it's Savick and she's in this simulation and the whole point of the Kobayashi Maru is you, you can't win. So you don't know it's a simulation at the start, right? It's a reveal that it's not real. And before you get that reveal, the entire bridge crew dies. So the, the magic trick that's happening there is you see Spock die and then it opens up and it was just a simulation. And that's a way to say to the audience who had learned about this leak, like, oh, it's just a simulation. He doesn't really die in this movie. So it could still be a surprise later. And then the, the thing that that magic trick does is it kind of lulls you into this false sense of security. You get to have this very fun swashbuckler movie for the majority of the movie that's very like lighthearted, honestly. And then like somewhere around the third act, everything just kind of like changes yeah. and gets way more serious and people start dying and Spock dies and suddenly the movie gets a lot weightier. I think that's the way that it pulls off what you're talking about, Kyle, is it's able to be earnest because it earned it because it it lets you have fun for most of it. And then we get the serious stuff. It's not like, I think what you're identifying right now when you say like it feels more earnest is if you compare it to like a modern Marvel movie, you know, a major character would die and the cast would look at that and be like, you know, and give a line about how that's sad and then immediately go back to like joking around. And making quips and shit as if that just didn't happen. Yeah, I, I'm saying this after having watched the recent Thor movie, and it's like literally mm, to the right. T exactly what happens. It's like this feels weird and and off putting. Spoiler um, alert! Before we get too far, Dave, what were your thoughts on Wrath of Khan this time around? 
Wow. Uh, so my name's Dave. I'm still on this podcast. You still here. Assholes. Um, no, I, you know, as a semi non nerd or a person obsessed with Star Trek, this is for everybody else that's made it this far an excellent movie. This movie's uh, put together in such a such a fun way. My biggest uh, sort of negative comment is as we're discussing, this is largely fan service. So if you don't know anything about Star Trek. The first 10 minutes, you're not going to want to continue watching this movie because they don't do a lot to teach you who these people are and why you should care about them. But the performances are pretty good. I don't know if I'm biased and we're all biased by the fact that we know uh, who Kirk is supposed to be and we know how their relationship works and we know why this is supposed to be Mm -hmm. funny and this is an allusion to something that happened in their relationship earlier. But, you know, this is not my first time watching this movie. I knew I would like it. I often refer to the earworm because it's so gross. And uh, it's fun to gross people out by the fact that we actually get to see worms placed into people's ears. It's fun. Uh, I think it's also, it is almost everyone's, one of their biggest fears is having something crawl inside of you that you can't get out. It's neat. I I enjoyed it. I think, you know, you brought it up. I was thinking the whole time, this is like a master and commander, particularly at the end when they go into the storm. It's such an exciting thing with naval films or any kind of war film when you actually get uh, two large entities in direct combat and then you add in the naval part which is no sight no fucking shields no nothing everything is like this gritty suspenseful thing we saw that with mm-hmm. Das Boot um, where the uh, tension is more important than the actual explosions you need explosions for sure but we have to have that build up um, that isn't on a shuttle just to relieve, uh, reveal <laughs> a spaceship so it's exciting Yeah. And I think it really shows, I don't know, this confidence because I didn't really notice this on my first viewing. I've watched this a couple of times since I originally watched it many years ago. But when someone pointed out to me that Khan and and, uh, Kirk never actually are in the same room Mm -hmm. together, it's like, oh, yeah, I guess they aren't. They're never, ever actually in the same room. So they're always apart from each other, which I think is where the tension really comes with in this movie is like, because they're never there just to like have that explosion really happen. That would probably make this podcast better if you and Dave were never in the same room together. And, you know, people make fun of the moment where, you know, Shatner yells, Khan, mm-hmm. right? That's like the thing everyone remembers. But in the context of the movie, it's it's really earned. Yeah. Yeah, like they, they actually mm-hmm. get you to a point where that doesn't feel super out. It's not like, um, you know, that moment in uh, episode three of Star Wars where Vader's like, no, and it just kind of feels very <laughs> right. cheesy and out of nowhere. Like it, it feels earned here. Um, you mentioned like Kirk and Khan never meet. There's a famous story that I'll repeat so that no one tweets it at you where they gave Montalban the script because they knew they had to get Monobon back like like they were very dedicated like mm-hmm. getting all the original actors back and he like a lot of actors um he just kind of flipped through to see all of his scenes he went i'm not really in this movie that much even though like it's my name in the title what's up with that the producers said to him and again this is a very famous story but they, they what they said to him was every scene that you're not in everyone's talking about you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so the whole movie is you man and he was like oh okay and he came in and agreed to do it i mean his presence is so great i mean talk about like a glow up of some kinds right like if you do watch him how what he looks like in that original episode space seed versus this one with like the Mm -hmm. cool white hair kind of mohawky thing and i don't know he just looks cool as a villain chest his enormous chest bulging out of his torn shirt he's huge he looks amazing Mm -hmm. what he's a quintessential evil alien bad i know he's human but yeah. evil alienish bad guys fantastic in this he looks so cruel yeah wow. 
The only thing I'll slightly disagree with you on, Dave, is well, I agree maybe like the first 10 minutes or so, they don't do a whole lot to like really handhold the audience. I do think if this was the first Star Trek thing you ever watched in your life, they do give you enough of like, okay, like Kirk is um, upset that he's getting older. Uh, Spock is all about reason. Bones is all about uh, no, heart or passion. No. Like they give you Those all that stuff. Those are biases we bring into it because we know what a Vulcan is and we know that the no, doctor is supposed to be angry. They, they literally say it like straight up to the I, audience. No, through okay. I'm going to agree with, I'm going to agree with both of you, which means I also disagree with both of you, right. but I think Dave's right. I think the movie doesn't do a great job of explaining Star Trek. Mm. Like if you don't know Spock, if you don't know Kirk, if you don't know Starfleet, if you don't know the context of like, what's the Federation, what's any of this. I don't think they do a great job of doing that. On yeah. the other hand, the movie's called Star Trek Two, so maybe right, exactly. Like, but... Fuck off if you wanted to have your hand held. But what I will say the movie's good at is if you know what Star Trek is, and even from like a cultural osmosis thing. Which again, in 1982, it's there. Everyone knows what Star Trek mm -hmm. is. It's on reruns all the time. SNL is parodying it. Everyone watches it. So like, I think they didn't need to feel like they needed to hold people's hands because it's Star Trek and everyone knew. While the movie does a bad job of explaining Star Trek, what I do think it does a good job at doing is if you just have never happened to catch Space Seed, the episode it's a sequel to you don't need to watch in reruns, it. I think the movie does yes. a good job of getting you up to speed on that. Yes. You know, Chekhov and his new captain, mm -hmm. Tyrell, they go down to the planet because that captain is not an Enterprise guy because the, the, the thing is like Chekhov's been transferred to some other ship. So because that captain doesn't know who Khan is, that gives the movie an excuse to explain who Khan is yes. and what his deal is. And I think the movie does a good job with that. And I think that was more important because like Star Trek's kind of a thing everybody knows, but you know, back in the days before streaming and DVDs and shit, you only knew Space Seed if you happened to have caught that it on a particular TV. episode. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. It's it's written really well. That's why the movie's so good. I think everything's tight. It's fun to watch and I didn't need to, like, I didn't remember what Khan looked like. So you're right, absolutely right. I yeah. didn't need to. So, and it's so succinct the way that he tells his backstory. We don't need a fucking flashback or, or a call out mm -hmm. or a reenactment or deep faking somebody's face, Marvel. We, we just have a guy <laughs> who could like act his way to explain to the audience that, yeah, you fucking, you fucked me. And now it's my turn to fuck mm -hmm. you. And you're like, yeah, like, I don't, I'm not cheering for you. But I get it, and I want this climax. Yeah, he's got right? enough charisma, yeah. <laughs> and his, with his little yeah. Aryan race uh, soldiers, and you're just like, "Wow, this is so creepy." Because everybody's yeah. blind. I mean, he's also one of those villains <laughs> that I always kind of love when you can pull this trick off, which is like, I don't want you to win, and I don't necessarily side with you, but I have to begrudgingly say, "Well, you have a point <laughs> to be angry right now. <laughs> well, you were dropped off on this planet. It explodes. Your wife dies. Like you've been." out here by yourself like i'd be kind of pissed too to be honest like i get it i understand this is what i mean when i say the movie is about examining kirk's flaws mm -hmm. as a character right because kirk is this big hero he's definitely one of those heroes who if you're someone of the trek fan base uh, at that time anyways it was very much a thing in the trek fan base to hold kirk up on a, a pedestal i think it's been so long now and william shatner's made such like an ass of himself in real life a few times now that like people are more willing to be like, ah, Kirk sucks, which isn't quite like the whole, for example, stereotype that Kirk fucks everything on two legs um, isn't quite true. If you go back and watch the original show, it's sort of a stereotype born out of other things. Later, Sometimes but, it was four legs. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but, 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 but the movie is about saying this hero has flaws and the, t the two of the flaws that the movie examines is they're almost meta. The movie does have some meta commentary 
on the show. Because what's the big mistake here that causes all this trauma is that Kirk dropped Khan off on a planet and flew off to the next adventure and never checked on him again because Kirk was the hero of an episodic TV show years before TV shows did Mm -hmm. serialized storytelling. And so it's this kind of meta thing of like, you look at a lot of Star Trek episodes, they're like that, you know, Kirk beams down to a planet, completely fucks their entire social order because it's not what he thinks it should be. Peace guys. Uh, Presumes, (laughs) right. Presumes that what he's done will fix everything leaves, never comes back. Right. Well, I think that and also so that's what, uh, kind of, again, is um, also shown in mm. like the new character, right? Of the woman, his son, that sort of thing. Like he, mm-hmm. I don't think he's shown to be like the greatest of people. Like he's a great captain. I think right. he's shown again and again, he's a great captain. But as a person, maybe there's some shades of gray that are going on well, here. So that's the other like meta commentary here thing is if we, if we have this idea that Kirk sleeps around a lot is a bit of a womanizer. If you look at the original show, the women that he's with fall into basically three categories. There's women he actually falls in love with, which is happens twice on the original show and they die both times. Then there are essentially like enemy women who he seduces to get information or to get out of a trap or for the mission. Like Kirk has sex with women less because he's a womanizer and more because he's basically like a male black widow. Mm-hmm. But the third type that showed up on the show a lot was ex-girlfriends where it was like, we were together years ago, but you felt your career was more important, blah, blah. And that's what we get in this movie with Carol Marcus is it's clear that they were together, like maybe before he was captain of the enterprise. And he was like, that's more important to me and left. And, you know, if you remember, like this is 1982, the original show was on in the sixties and kind of like the era of the sixties with like the free love movement and shit. This movie is not just about like the consequences of Khan coming back. It's the consequences of, hey, you you had sex with this lady like 20 years ago and left and never came back. And surprise, you have a son mm-hmm. and he kind of hates your guts because you've been you haven't been yeah, in his absent. life yeah, yeah. the whole time. Right. I think like, you know, so it's showing Kirk's flaws, but also how he how he overcomes them, because then he has, the you know, the arc of you get to the end of the movie and he hugs his son and I, whatever. Right. I do feel that second meta commentary. It's a little awkward in this film. I don't know if it's necessary to the uh, story itself, but uh, mm. it's interesting that it's in there. And you're right. It's definitely intentionally there to kind of tie up a reflection on how they've framed Captain James T. Kirk uh, in his history. It'd be, I don't know how you could do it, but I know Khan is talking about his family, but there's just something that I, I maybe it's just because the actor was such a dick he's such a pretentious curly-haired asshole trying to punch everybody in the oh, face oh the guy who plays david yeah, marcus is, i just yeah, couldn't yeah, get yeah. behind that storyline um, <laughs> okay so like one of the problems with david and savick uh who's the young vulcan character played by kirstie alley of cheers fame uh this is pre-cheers Kirstie well yeah just pre weight washers yeah I was going to say, like, it's interesting here this year, Dave, because we talked about uh, Ron Howard's film yeah. Night Shift, Shelley Long, because yeah. uh, Cheers would have started like a few months after, after this yes, with Shelley Long, and in five years, Kirstie Alley would have replaced her. So we've talked about two Cheers actors, so, weirdly enough. Right. This so Kirstie Alley and her character, Savick, when this was first being made, they knew, you know, this is a movie about how all the characters are older. And how, and it's a movie about death, right? Spock mm-hmm. dies at the end. Kirk has to kind of come to grips with the fact that he's over the hill, all of this. So if you forget, if you just wipe the sequels from your mind for a second, and you just are looking at this movie on its own, what's happening in this movie is they are setting up a replacement set of characters. Spock is dying and Savick is being set up as his replacement. 
Kirk is old. David is being set up as his replacement. There's this sense of like a new mm-hmm. generation coming in. What happened was Harve Bennett, the producer who I mentioned earlier, his background was TV. That was like he's from a TV background before, which is one of the reasons they actually hired him for this. And towards the end of shooting, they're shooting the Spock death scene. And Harve Bennett came over to Leonard Nimoy and and DeForest Kelly, who plays McCoy. And he said, hey, before you go into the like reactor chamber or wherever that Spock goes that gets him killed, uh, I want you to like grab McCoy and like do a quick Vulcan mind meld on him and just say, remember. Mm-hmm. And the actors were like, why? What does that mean? And Harvard Bennett goes, I have no idea. I'll figure it out Intuition. later. Yeah. yeah, but let's just throw something in here in case we get well, a sequel. That, that is the remarkable thing because it does feel like it's just setting up Star Trek 3. And in, in, in a world where you have the box set and you see that Star Trek three, the search for Spock is next. It's like, Oh, okay. Well, they knew that this is where it was going to. And they didn't really, it was something that they threw in just in case, but the, the intent was to kill Spock because Nimoy didn't want to keep doing the role. And that was why they brought Savage in. But the thing that happens with movies is movies take a long time to make. And so you have these ideas at the start of production where you're like, this is where I'm going with this. And then by the end of the production, Nemo is going like, oh, actually, I'm having a really great time doing this now that Roddenberry's not around. Like, this is really fun. <laughs> this movie doesn't suck. Like, this is a lot, of, you know, good time. And they made the movie. It came out. It was a way bigger hit uh, than motion picture, at least in terms of fan response, critical response, right? Oh, yeah. And all the cast had a really good time making it. And suddenly it was like, we can't let Spock stay dead. We need to do a third movie and it needs to be about getting Spock back to life. And so all of a sudden, remember becomes important or like, that shot that this movie ends on where you see his like coffin has safely landed on the planet somewhat. Somehow. Um, yeah. How? Somehow, yeah. Right? Like somewhat uh, improbably. Yeah. Right. Like that wasn't how that movie was supposed to end. Like that, we're saying it right now. That doesn't make sense. But towards the end of production, they all kind of started going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We should set up that we're going to bring Spock back. Mm-hmm. So they added that stuff in and that becomes what the third movie's about. And what that meant was suddenly they didn't need Stavik and David anymore. Because it was like, oh, this like this movie was almost designed to be a send off to the right, original yeah, yeah. Star Trek crew, and they were going to have new characters in Star Trek Three, and they had kind of introed two of them in this one, right? Like, presumably, Star Trek Three would have brought in like other newer young characters to fill in the gaps as well, right? There was actually a subplot for Sulu in this movie that got cut, where they were revealing that like you know all the Enterprise crew here is like they're working as like Starfleet Academy training instructors or whatever. There was a subplot that was going to say like Sulu's just doing this because he's been promoted to captain of the Excelsior mm. and you know, he's got like, you know, six months before that comes into play. So he's just here doing this job for now. And so it was setting up all the characters to go off and do other things. And that didn't end stop, up being the case. Stop Asian hate, um, man. Stop Asian hate. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it, stru- it stood out to me that uh, uh, Savick addresses Sulu as Mr. Like, yeah. he's just like, what yeah. the fuck? It's so weird how he's so minimalized. Yeah, he, when he's clearly, he's clearly like her superior. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if he's her superior, but he's definitely treated like a well, piece she's of a, shit. So that's kind of funny. She's a cadet and he's a lieutenant, yeah. right? He's yeah. an officer, he's a lieutenant suppo- commander or something. I mean, only the only context is like, you know, if she's supposed to be like the in-training captain. I, like, yeah, but you don't call someone Mr. Unless that's his first name. It's just a little, it stood out to it's, me. It's, it's, it's a, kind of a weird thing. It's a, well, he was called Mr. Sulu and like Mr. Buck. Like that's all naval parlance though. Like calling a subordinate Mr. Something is a naval thing. But it, never, it doesn't regardless, happen after uh, the Kobayashi Maru incident. Yeah, they, yeah. they cut that Sulu subplot. They cut these ideas of the crew moving on to do other things because they were like, oh, we're going to do a sequel with the original crew. Yeah. And what ends up happening with that is when you get to Star Trek 3, 
Savick's been kind of Build off. booted off onto yeah. some other ship and replaced by Robert, uh, a different actress, because right. Christie Alley wanted you know more money. And David gets killed in Star Trek Three to like kind of fuel, like uh, he gets fridged basically, like he gets mm-hmm. killed to like kind of fuel Kirk's arc in that movie because they didn't need them anymore because they weren't going to get rid of the original cast. So when you look at this movie, I think Dave, you're totally right. I think you're totally right that Kirk's son kind of feels like this thing that's not as connected to the main movie as it should be. And I think that's because that character was supposed to go on and be more significant than he was, but instead he just gets killed off in the next movie and you're left wondering what was the point of that. Mm -hmm. Right. And again, I think it's that case of like our knowledge of what happens in the other movies kind of comes back and colors how we see this. I I think you're going to see this. I mean, I know a lot of people will say that there is no fourth Indiana Jones movie, but like, (laughs) Shilabuff's coming back. Is that what we're gonna say? Well, he's not. That's what I mean, though. Like Shia LaBeouf was put into that movie to take the reins yeah. of more Indiana Jones movies, and then every fan was like, "No, <laughs> I reject the premise." Uh, and then Indiana Jones says, "Indy's gonna die with me." Is basically what his uh, his they're making another one, right? So. I think so. Yeah, they're making. Yes, they are. Yeah, and it's gonna be Harrison Ford we're again. We're gonna get a little death yeah, with action because there's no way Harrison Ford can do at 80 years old yeah, can be Indiana Jones any anymore. Physical well. Activity. You tell him, Dave. He'll drive a plane into your house. Do you guys want to see a scene where Shia LaBeouf's character gets killed in, in like at the start of the movie, like in a pre-credit sequence? He like, has to, right? He's the, off, like like Shia LaBeouf's like off in a tomb, like doing Indiana Jones things, and then the like order comes and just like it's smash. the same thing uh, as Raiders. He's just suddenly decapitated yeah, yeah. for no reason. You're like, oh well, all right. Yeah. Well, I guess he's done. Yeah, yeah. We can do um, it. I I do want to just put a fine point onto it before we do some backstory here. How I, I really do think uh, effective the whole like Spock and Kirk dynamic is in this in this film, like the, the whole thrust of this movie, like the the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. It gets repeated again and again, and he says, and even the needs of the one. Right? He, mm-hmm. I am willing to sacrifice myself to save the entire crew here, and uh, I don't know. I just find that so so compelling oh, yeah. uh, on how this uh, this movie ends. It's like it's almost a shame. That even the first time I watched this, I knew that he survives in the next movie because I think it would just have hit harder if it was in 1982. I was going and seeing this movie like, oh my God, this character I've invested so much time with, he's gone. People must have been weeping. Yeah, I'm sure people were crying in the theaters. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, especially like, as I said, because they pull off this little magic trick of making you think he's safe Mm -hmm. by by fake killing him at the start, right? Mm -hmm. The power of great writing too, because it's not the only time. How many times does Kirk talk about taking him instead of everybody else and they have all these sacrificial lambs <laughs> right. throughout the whole film it's it's uh it's very well written it's tightly written yeah. it's a very good movie yeah, yeah. well that's the thing is like i can't i can't honestly say that i've like liked william shatner and most other things i've seen him in but just for whatever reason <laughs> as captain kirk he fucking nails it like he just is good okay. at doing it <laughs> you want to know you want to know a fun fact about his performance in this movie what's that so nicholas mayer knew that you know shatner has this reputation for overacting mm-hmm. which to be fair, was something that they kind of needed on the original series. Um, he, he, I mean, and, as a Canadian, he was well known as a great Shakespearean actor. Like he was known for his great Shakespearean performances. Do you know? Did you know he's not the only Canadian in the cast? Well, Walter Koenig is also Canadian, no, is he not? No, 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 no. Uh, no um, James Doohan, who plays. Scotty, oh, sorry. Yes, is Canadian. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, Shatner's um, Jewish Canadian. He's from Montreal. And James Doohan is like British Canadian from like Ontario. Next time you watch Star Trek, any Star Trek with Scotty in it, and it's not a close up, watch uh, for Scotty's, uh, I believe it's his right hand, because he's missing his ring finger mm. on his right hand. 
because it was blown off in World War II when he was in right. the Royal Canadian Air Force. Every time they do a close-up of his fingers, like pressing the transporter console buttons or whatever, that's a it's a hand double, oh, so really? it's not like obvious. But if you look in wide shots, you can see it. Anyways, the thing about Shatner is like if you if you watch that first Star Trek pilot where it's Jeffrey Hunter as Captain Pike instead, he's very like low key and cerebral. And Leonard Nimoy is very low key and cerebral. And everyone so in that boring. pilot is very low key and cerebral. Yeah. So they needed like a contrast, right? If, if Nimoy was going to be, you know, monotone, they needed someone who has a bit more energy. But um, Nicholas Mayer, what he did in this movie as a director working with Shatner is any shots he did with Shatner, he did way more takes than he needed. He would do take after take to get him tired take, to, wear him down. to bring him down to get him tired what he did was he he exhausted shatner and then once shatner was tired he found that his line readings got more natural mm-hmm. because shatner doesn't actually talk like that no like no, if you he... see interviews and shit he does that because he as you just said he was a trained shakespearean actor and so if you watch him like in the early 60s when he's like really young i think he did like I want to say like Julius Caesar something on, on CBC or things like that. If you watch him doing stuff like that, it makes sense. It, it makes sense as a way to read Shakespeare. And in fact, it's the same way uh, Adam West talks. Mm-hmm. You watch Adam West as Batman. It's the same cadence because Adam West had the same Shakespearean training. But what Nicholas Mayer did here was he, he, t- he tuckered Shatner out to the point where Shatner didn't have the energy for it. So he just gave very natural line readings. And that's why you know, if, if anyone ever says like, oh, yeah, he's way better as Kirk in this movie than in the other movies. That's why, because they he, the director used this this trick. That's to, cool. Do, do, have you do you know Nicholas Meyer's other movies that he did? Yeah. Seven percent solution was what he was most famous for before Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan. Yeah. So he wrote this this movie called The Seven Percent Solution. He wrote the book actually first and then he wrote the yes. screenplay for it. Dave, have you ever heard about no. the seven percent solution? No. OK, mm-hmm. so it's it's just a. A Sherlock Holmes story. Like it's just a new Sherlock Holmes story, which it's Robert Duvall as Watson. And now I can't remember right. who Sherlock is. It's Nickel Williams as Sherlock Holmes. Okay. So if you've seen Excalibur, That's right. uh, the King Arthur movie, Nickel Williams plays Merlin in that. Mm-hmm. Um, 7% Solution is, is like one of those, you know how it's like, it got really popular online for a while for people to write like clickbait articles that were like, what if Ferris Bueller was all in Cameron's head and, and stuff right. like that. Yeah, yeah. Seventh uh, percent solution is like that way before that was common because um, the title refers to you, you know cocaine. if you're a big Sherlock Holmes fan you you know he's a cocaine yeah. addict uh, he takes a seven percent solution of cocaine so the the premise of seven percent solution is that Moriarty is not real he is something that Sherlock Holmes in his cocaine-addled he's mind pigment, yeah. made up as a way to like challenge himself because he got bored with all the like petty shit and. The plot of that movie is Watson taking Holmes to get like psychoanalyzed by Sigmund Freud and try to like get That's him off it the is. cocaine. Yeah, yeah. It's wild. Yeah. I have seen it. Uh, the reason I have seen it is there's a connection with uh, my favorite Broadway composer, Stephen Sondheim, because he wrote a song within that movie. Weirdly enough, one of, <laughs> really? the, few, one of the few movies well, he wrote just that. a single song for. <laughs> it's That's bizarre. Wild. Anyways, but he also and this is the movie I really want to go and see is Time After Time. Do you either of you know what Time After Time is about? I've not seen it. I, I've heard the title. Here's but. the description. Writer H.G. Wells pursues Jack the Ripper to modern day San Francisco after the infamous serial killer steals his time machine to escape the 19th century. Amazing. I want to see that movie so bad. Because <laughs> that sounds so cool. <laughs> so, so that's like Nicholas Meyer. I bet it turns out that Wells is Jack the Ripper. The other thing about Nicholas Meyer is he wasn't a Star Trek guy. No, he didn't. He's never seen a single episode, apparently. 
That's right. That's why this yeah, is before good. he did this movie. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I think I agree with you, Dave. I think that is totally why because he, he doesn't have the the he could the just think of the story of, of it, right? This yeah. movie and, and just concentrate on making this movie good rather than trying to think about fan service, all no. this other stuff. No. Yeah. Okay, well, let's do some backstory here then. So this movie opened up on June 4th, 1982. It is currently rated 3.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd, 7.7 out of 10 on IMDb. It has a 67 on Metacritic. And on Rotten Tomatoes, from 72 critics, it has an 86%. And from 50,000 plus users, it has a 90%. Of course, it is available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can currently purchase or rent it on iTunes or YouTube. And I'm assuming, I did not actually check this, that you can probably stream it on Paramount Plus, but I did not check that out beforehand. Uh, yeah, the, the movie rights are a little weird because they're slightly different than the series rights. Okay. Uh, I think it's on Paramount Plus. I don't know if it's on Crave or like what the Canadian rights yeah. situation for it is right now. I will say that um, if you want to have a home video copy um, and you don't own a Blu-ray of it yet, uh, wait. I think there's a 4K release oh, it's coming? that is coming out this year or just came out. Get that, uh, even if it's the 4K Blu-ray combo pack. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is because the the DVD of this is very good. The 4K is very good. The standalone Blu-ray they did a few years ago, all of the original series movies got this really heavy like DNR digital noise reduction oh. treatment that makes all of the actors look like they're wax figures. Oh, it's really ugly and terrible. So if you can get the 4K or or the Blu-ray that's based on the more recent 4K, that's the one to to go for. Its budget was $12 million. It would go on to, which by the way, this is our favorite punching bag, but one of the worst films we have ever seen that came out here in 1982 oh, is man. Yes, is Yes, Giorgio starring Pavarotti and its budget apparently was $15 million. And this now confirms it, that that must have been some sort of like tax money laundering, something. money laundering scheme, because there is no way this movie cost $12 million and that movie cost 15. It just does not make sense. How big was Pavarotti at that time? Pavarotti was... At nearly the peak of his singing, his opera career. It was $10 million of that just for yes. him? It had to have been. Because it's before the three tenors, but he's he's the biggest name in opera. And that movie mm-hmm. is the biggest piece of shit we've ever seen. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah. Um, it's box office. It would go on to make $97 million, at least in North it's America, which is adjusted for inflation, $297 million. That'd be... It ain't no first blood. Yeah. No, keep going. So, well, you're right. That's it's a not... good return on investment, yeah. though. 12 to 97. Oh, yeah. Like it was the sixth highest grossing film in North America that year of 1982. Its plot description is with the assistance of the Enterprise crew, Admiral Kirk must stop an old nemesis, Khan Noonien Singh, from using the life generating Genesis device as the ultimate weapon. Yeah, we didn't even talk about the Genesis device as being basically like a a nuclear Armageddon kind of allegory thing, Mm -hmm. right? Was, uh, well, what's also kind of interesting about that, this is interesting from like the original episode where they actually do have this scene where like Spock is like so like incredulous because they're praising Khan for what he did on Earth. He was like a dictator on Earth before right. he came out here. I, we respect him in this weird way. It's like, no, 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 Spock, you don't understand. Like, we're not saying that we agree with anything that he did, but there's this begrudging respect of like how, what he accomplished, blah, blah, blah. But even in this one, it's like, this amazing thing that they've created, but also, as uh, McCoy kind of points out, this is awful. Like, why are we? Wasn't that? Why, why are we doing this? Until he sees it, and then he's like, "This is amazing." No, I can't a, believe that's it. That's a commentary on not just nuclear culture, but science in general. Yeah. Like, how much 
how much of science is really about how you apply it. And, 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 you know, the great thing about that scene, I really like that scene where they have that discussion because that is, that's such a classic Star Trek scene, yeah. right? Of, of it. That's the Trinity, right? That moral, that's yeah. Spock saying, this is an amazing scientific achievement. McCoy saying, this is monstrous. And Kirk kind of having to thread the line in between. What's clever is that they found a way to kind of have a nuke allegory in this movie, but it's still, it's, it's, a nuke that's super specific to the themes of this movie. Yeah, it, it is life. like, right. It takes life and gives it. And that's, you know, so that death rebirth cycle is like the theme of the whole, like, you know, coming back to what Dave was saying about the, the, the script being very tight, right? Everything is supporting everything yes. else mm-hmm. in, in the screenplay. You might say it's a good matrix. You mentioned the, uh, <laughs> the budget was 12 million. Yeah. 12? That's what I saw. Yeah. Okay. Motion picture was 44. Right. Right? Yeah. Like you want an idea of how, how the studio was like, nah, well, I, I'm pretty sure this not. is still the time. Dave and I were talking about this offline, but I'm pretty sure the 80s were still the time. Like not, not this drastic, but normally sequels were reduced in price. Like you never yes. gave more money to a sequel. That's kind of That's changed right. in recent years where each sequel kind of gets more money thrown at Only it, Marvel, right? Well, maybe it's true. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, and, and maybe, but like, maybe also your other big like Bond and... Yeah, which stays about the same as far yeah. as the, the budget levels, yeah. Also, I, but, but you're totally I'm right. cynical about budget reporting and film. Yeah, Dave doesn't believe any of the numbers that come out. They just don't make well, okay, sense Well, okay, so, so one thing I will say is as a rule of thumb, if you're on like a Wikipedia page or, or something looking at the number they give for budget and for box office, if you're looking at a movie and it says that the budget was like 20 million and the box office was 40 million and then the text is like, this movie was a flop and you're like, how? It made double the box marketing. Because any movie studio, um, the typical uh, operating procedure is to spend the entire movie budget again on the marketing. Mm-hmm. So any movie that costs 20 million to make, they will spend another 20 million to market, which means the movie has to break 40 million to break even and means ideally you want 80 million so that you're doubling what you spend. I love love the idea that that's a ratio. You know, you're just like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) well, we raised 40 million bucks for this, but uh, what's another 40 million to put on some commercials on TV? Yeah, that's a good idea. I I like that. (laughs) And and, and the other thing too is um, generally speaking, if a movie doesn't at least make if a movie doesn't break even on opening weekend it's considered a it's failure. not going to hit the number it's going to hit mm-hmm. right. so that's how they can say like you know on by sunday whether a movie's a flop or not because the 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 metrics basically say that if it doesn't hit it's if it doesn't break even by opening weekend it won't hit that double yeah, unless you're it like needs to be successful like the weird anomaly of the greatest showman or something like that yeah, it's um, like we, we watched you, one too you, this you year. have to make it in opening weekend it was like the second week it blew up but i don't remember which one was it et there was something that was huge but it was not the first weekend that it blew up it doesn't no, matter that was more of it i would say an 80s thing too you could come in like second the first weekend and then go one yeah, the next weekend like you up. could actually build Anyways, uh, over time we're but, so hmm. far offline here kyle Reel us in, man. All right. Um, well, it's time to play everyone's favorite game. Guess yes. that tag. Ike to Donnie, handsome blazer, the long microphone that Bob Barker used to use. When, Ben's uh, going to just know this tagline, so you might just exclude. No, we'll see. We'll see. We're gonna, you know, you go to the movie theater. Maybe you are going to go see the, the movie Nope, like I am later tonight. And you see the beautiful artistry of the poster as you enter into the lobby. But there's also that little tagline that you see on the poster. So the, your job, Ben, is that one of these is the actual tagline on the poster to Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And the other two are completely made up by me. 
So you have to guess which one of these is the correct one. Was the actual tagline, at the end of the universe lies the beginning of vengeance? Is it, the Enterprise crew boldly goes back to where they never should have returned? Or is it, he promised revenge and now he's going to take it? Mm. I will say that the third one at least sounds real. The second one was making me think like, don't quit your day job. Kyle Marshall. You know, Kyle, like don't go into <laughs> all advertising. Right, all right, fine. I'll um, just take that. So it's, it's the first one. And uh, it actually reminds me of a little fun story about this movie. So the first one is um, at the end of the universe is the beginning of vengeance. That's right. Do you want right? to take a That's guess or do you want to just... <laughs> He's like reading it back to you. So <laughs> Uh, I'm going to go with two. No, yeah, I'm going to go with two. Two sounded very two. good to me. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, ben is correct. It is the first one. But. Okay. Okay. Let me tell you how I remember that. This movie's first original title was not going to be Wrath of Khan. Right. The original title of the... Well, okay. The original title of this movie was going to be The Undiscovered Country, Ooh. which is a Shakespeare reference uh, to the to be or not to be speech from Hamlet. The Undiscovered Country meaning death. And which fits in with the fact that I think something like 40% of all Star Trek episodes are have Shakespeare quotes as the titles. And the movie studio Paramount said, no, no, no one's going to know what the fuck that means. No <laughs> one's going to understand that pretentious reference. Don't call to it. To be honest, they're probably right. But <laughs> yeah. What's funny, though, is that this movie did so well that um, when Nicholas Mayer came back to do Star Trek Six, Use the title. that movie, he got to call The Undiscovered Country mm-hmm. by that point. Yeah. That's the one with Christopher Plummer in it or no? That's right. Yeah. Another Canadian. Yeah, yeah. That one that one's really good too. Mm-hmm. Um another Canadian. Not only another Canadian, but Christopher Plummer and William Shatner came from the same mm-hmm. um Toronto Shakespeare company. Right. Uh so they knew each other right. Anyways, this movie was going to be called The Vengeance of Khan. And they changed it because it they were gonna call the Star Wars movie that came out in 1983 Revenge of the Jedi. So they Too changed similar. this to Wrath of Khan. And then of course George Lucas decided, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Jedi don't take revenge that's not really the theme i want to portray here and changed it to return of the jedi which means they didn't have to change this movie's title i'm glad they did to begin with but they already had by that point because this came out the year earlier so that sounds better but they managed to throw vengeance into the tagline there they got that word in somewhere unlike uh, option two which was so far off the mark this stars, of course, William Shatner's. What was option three again? Uh, he promised revenge, and now he's going to take it. Mm. That feels like if, if this bad. movie was from like 1987 or something, I would totally have guessed that one because that one has a very like this time mm. it's personal mm. kind of. Yeah, it's not bad. Feeling it's not to bad. it. Not bad. Not bad. It's fine. It's fine. How about the rejected fourth option? The earworm you just can't shake. Ooh. Is that with that one? <laughs> not a Q-tip doesn't go deep enough. <laughs> uh, absolutely. If this movie was made today, there would have been a scene where like, you know, that when they're on the Genesis planet and um, check off, like he's like, ah, and like, yeah. falls on the ground and the worm crawls out of him. Absolutely. Today, like Savick would have looked in the camera like Fleabag and been like, that's what I call an earworm. Like that would absolutely be <laughs> right. the joke. How did today. I get here? Oh, man. <laughs> By the way, we should probably just, again, we always get letters or emails uh, when we don't mention something. I, I hear you. I see you. The people who are like, yes, Chekhov was not part of the show when Khan's episode aired. He did not actually appear until the second season, which people have pointed out since this movie came out. But you're all a bunch of nerds. No one cares. So <laughs> this movie stars wow. William Shatner as Kirk, Leonard Nimoy as Spock, DeForest Kelly as McCoy, Ricardo Montalban as Khan, and B.B. Besh as Carol. Um, anything else you want to say about any of those actors? No, before? we got to get a move on, man. This is like, we're we're reaching two hours, Kyle. Let's uh, home stretch. Uh, home cinematography. Stretch. 
Cinematography is by Gain Rescher. His top four movies are this movie, Lucky Chances from 1990, Shooter from 1988, and Murder Me, Murder You from 1983. Three movies I have never heard of in my entire life. I, I could not said, believe meanwhile, it. Meanwhile, I thought it was just Shooters, like that Mark Wahlberg. Didn't he make no. a movie called Shooter? Uh, he did. Like he about did, being actually. a sniper or something? I didn't watch it. Meanwhile, Motion Picture had the same cinematographer, I think, is 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, yeah. Like, again, this is what, like, the point I'm trying to just get across here is like, this is not the A team no. that the studio brought in to make this. Mr. T did hang lights on this movie, though. Look good. Though. The, this was written, of course, by, uh, with a story by Har, is it Harv? Is this Harv Bennett? Harv. Harv Bennett and Jack B. Sa- Jack B. Sowards. Screenplay by Jack B. Sowards, based on the characters created by Gene Roddenberry. And directed by Nicholas Meyer. We've basically kind of covered all this backstory. Other than I just like the fact that the original series was uh, produced by Desilu Studios. So Lucille Ball actually had a hand of making Star Trek a thing. Which I always think is fun. And I will say that um, Nicholas Meyer, uh, Nicholas Meyer um, wrote the final draft of this screenplay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he's not credited on the movie because of like it's like a SAG. Or sorry, I guess that would be the Writers Guild. Guild. Yeah, Guild. It's a Screenwriters Guild thing where, uh, yeah, Writers Guild of America, WJ. Um, it's like it's a union credit thing. Like he's not allowed to, but the final draft is written by by him. Right. Um, right. And he's actually the one who decided that um, Khan's wife would be dead. Right. Which is interesting. Think, um, was there ever a discussion of bringing that actress back? Yes. At all. Uh, so she's actually in earlier drafts um and they were going to bring her back um the actress was still working madeline rue um and then nicholas meyer came in and on his draft he decided to kill her because basically she doesn't do anything right. in the drafts that she was right. in she basically there's um there's like a younger person on Khan's crew uh named like joaquin or something but he's basically just the guy who like says things like the enterprise shields are down sir and and shit like that like that was all well, he all- does also try to warn him that this is stupid Stupid. Yeah. Yes. There, there so is also was... a character named Kyle, apparently, in this movie. <laughs> yeah, that's um okay. I will okay, listen, pin in that so I can finish what I was saying. But um that was what Khan's wife was gonna be. Okay. She was gonna be that character who says, like, their shields are down, let or like Moral the like Khan, like, let's get the fuck out of here. And what Nicholas Meyer realized was like it would it would it she doesn't do enough in the story to make it worth it being her she actually is more valuable to the story dead rather than alive to serve as motivation so right that's why she doesn't come back um the character who you're talking about whose name is kyle that is commander kyle he's the communications officer of the uss reliant he's a british guy with blonde hair and a beard uh if you're looking for him when you watch the movie so basically looks like me is what you're saying yes uh and he's the transporter chief from the original series if you go back and you watch the original series lieutenant kyle is the transporter chief and so they brought the same actor back And promoted his character to a different role, just as like a fun, fun. little, again, like fan service kind of thing. One last person I think we should mention here then is that while the first movie had like Jerry Goldsmith as the composer, he was not available to come mm. back this time around. So they took a chance on a then 28 year old James Horner. This is one of his like first jobs. Nice. He would. Well, I guess not first first jobs, but uh, he would go on to be a. Uh, have uh, a huge film as a film composer. Some of his more famous scores, Aliens, Field of Dreams, Braveheart, Titanic. Although I will say this, this is how much of a weirdo I am. One of my favorite pieces he ever composed, I don't know if anyone will have any probably not. cultural re- uh, reference to this, is Casper's Lullaby from the movie Casper. I think it's a beautiful piece of writing wow. in that otherwise forgotten like family Devin film Sawa, from Casper? the mid-90s. Okay. 
I've seen that movie, but I haven't seen it in like 25 yeah. years, probably. Yeah. Um, the thing about James Horner's score in this, I love the music in this. I think Beautiful. it totally hits that like that Navy mm-hmm. battle feel really well. Um, he So if you watch this movie and then just immediately after go into watching Aliens, uh, the second Alien movie that James Horner did the score for as well. The best one. Um, the, score, the score for Aliens is is really great really original really spooky whatever until we get to the final little bit where it's like ripley goes back to fight the get away from her you right like and uh, before that even actually when they're on the planet and she kind of like torches the the eggs and and then the the refinery blows up and and she's on like the the platform and they're not there to meet her and then finally the ship comes up and she dives on and whatever the music in that last little bit is note for note exactly the fight Navy battle music oh. from Wrath of Khan. I, I was going to say, uh, like, Horner, James uh, Horner was criticized throughout his career of like reusing themes throughout his career. Like, this is actually just in, this theme again, and it's just this theme again. In the case of Aliens, it was because I think, um, if I remember correctly, like he had to write the score for Aliens like a week before the movie oh, was going to wow. come out. Like, he just didn't have the time. Right. But he did, yeah, he does have that habit. Um, it was really distracting for me watching uh, Avatar, the James Cameron movie because uh he did the score for that too and i think the very first shot of the planet uh which the name of that planet on that movie escapes me pandora hell yeah that's right (laughs) because everything in that movie has a super obvious obvious name yeah uh yeah that's right um the music when you see that planet is the same music as like when like the Reliant approaches oh, wow. SETI Alpha 5 or whatever in this movie. Like it's the exact same. And I only know that because I've seen this movie so many times <laughs> that the, the music is very like yeah, in, yeah. My, in my head. Amazing. So when it pops up in other things, I'm like, wait this a minute. This is wrong. Wait a second. You just can't. You can't. You should. Although like, are you allowed to plagiarize yourself? Mm. I mean, it's more about integrity. It's more about integrity. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. I met George Takai. He's really nice. Yeah. He was. Uh, That's cool. I was a photographer for Wee Day before they were canceled. And uh, yeah, he was one of the photo ops. Super, super nice guy. I have a picture of him with me. And uh, he's really sweet. So I'm glad uh, he got stomped on in this film because that's what we need is a shitty mm-hmm. Asian. No, I'm just joking. He's great. I, uh, I had fun with it. No, I, I love this movie. It was, uh, yeah. it was worth it. My two last points. Number one, I wrote this down specifically because I thought it was, I think every time I, I watch this movie, there's just different things as I get older and older. But I love, uh, I think it's Kirk who says, how we deal with death is just as important mm-hmm. as how we deal with life. Yeah. And I just thought that was such a really beautiful way to encapsulate that idea. And lastly, just as a cool like point out of, again, how Montalban I think does a great job as a, as a villain. Of course, he like yells and screams. But a lot of time he goes like very quiet. And I think that's such a really interesting acting choice of like he's not going at 11 all the time. Sometimes he chooses, I'm going to go super quiet. And I'm super intense. And I'm super pissed off. I just think that makes it much more dramatic. It's so amazing when you watch this and Star Trek Into Darkness because um, Bennett Cumberbatch sucks so much in that movie. <laughs> and his performance is very over the top like yeah. that. Like mm-hmm. he's like, ah, rah, rah. and uh, the thing that wilds like weirds me out about that is like Ricardo Monoban he had in between doing star trek like the the episode that he did and doing this movie like he had a decent career he was the lead on um, fantasy, fantasy island. island yes um he's going to help you with your fantasy um but like ultimately like he wasn't ever super a huge actor like a lot of people if you talk to like older people what they remember him most for like car commercials right, right. too latin rich corinthian leather mm-hmm. um and yeah and that is too bad because then you look at Benedict Cumberbatch and there was like 
around the time of Star Trek Into Darkness, I swear there was like a five year stretch where he was in every single movie. Yeah. Like just it was like he's Smaug and he's Khan and he's uh, Doctor Strange and he's he's just in everything. When you compare the performances of those two guys in these two movies where they're playing the same character in a movie with basically the same plot. Uh, yeah, you're totally right. Like Montalban's performance blows him completely out of the water because Montalban has like screen presence and charisma. And you believe that he's this, you know, guy who's convinced he's the smartest mm-hmm. person to ever live. Whereas yeah, like Benedict Cumberbatch just kind of yells and screams a bunch and there's really no, nothing i think it's he just has a great chest he has a great chest amazing amazing chest i think it's uh we talked about a little bit earlier but there's i don't know if it's the script or the actor or both but good bad guys humanize them so that we Mm. don't cheer for them but we understand and we can empathize with an evil character and caricature bad guys are the worst which is why a lot of modern superhero films are so stupid because the bad guys just don't make any sense and uh i don't care for them yeah, you're just waiting for them to die. Yeah, they, they, they cast these amazing actors because they know they need Star someone power. with enough talent to like mm-hmm. just bring something from these weak scripts. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah this movie's script is, is really good. Um, speaking to um, Sulu and, and his cut subplot that I mentioned earlier, I will say just so that you don't get the emails and the tweets, um, eventually he does become Captain of the yes. Excelsior. By, by Star Trek Six, he is Captain of the Excelsior. Mm-hmm. But it took like three more movies for them to get around to that subplot that was originally supposed to happen in, right. in this movie. I also will say like uh, kudos to any, uh, to all the actors for looking like they absolutely adore Captain Kirk because uh, as um, any backstage report will tell you, most of them hated his guts. <laughs> uh, First decay so. especially. Oh yeah. Um, like, like, did not like, like him. And I think James Doohan was not a huge fan of uh, Shatner. Yeah. Either, so Nimoy and Shatner started out on sort of, bad terms and became friends mm-hmm. as time went on and, and they were like best friends by the end of it but the problem with Shatner is that he had a he's extreme he's an extremely insecure person people talk about his ego but his ego is because he actually has a horribly low opinion of himself and it makes him totally superly super 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 insecure and so when you watch original Star Trek if you watch really early episodes like early season one all the characters get a chance to contribute Sulu gets scenes on his own uh, Uhura gets to have scenes on her own. Everybody gets a little chance. And then as the show gets on, those characters fade more and more to the background because what started happening was like scripts would come in and it'd be like, we need to track down the Klingon ship and where it went to. And Sulu, who's like the helmsman, would be like, well, if you try and angulate your, their position from here, we can follow them to this system and blah, blah, blah. Shatner would come on set and he'd be like, well, you know, I'm the captain, I'm the hero. Shouldn't I be the one driving the action? Maybe I should be the one who comes up with. The idea that if we triangulate the position, blah, blah, blah. And he would basically just steal lines from people right. um, to, to, to sort of help his insecurity, which wasn't the problem was exacerbated by the fact that Spock was more popular. Like yeah. Spock was the breakout character and Shatner was sitting there going, but I'm the, the hero. I'm the guy with the, you know, my name at the start. And so, yeah, he ended up having like just this really, especially with George Takei, really bad relationship just because he kept stealing. Yeah. Sulu's lines. I will say there's time. a an old radio interview I remember listing with William Shatner on it, which is still one of my all time favorite interviews because he got so dark in it like so quickly. He was like eighty, I don't know, eighty three or something at the time. But like yeah, he's like ninety two or ninety three now. Yeah, he's ninety one I think now nowadays. But it was just like he was so introspective and so like eye opening. But like you said, it's like everything stems from him being insecure. I don't think that justifies it, but I'm just saying like, well, at least there's a reason. I understand. My rule is to just always be an asshole. 
he he wrote a really fascinating autobiography which makes it very clear that like before star trek you know in the 50s he like lived in his he he like struggled he was a struggling actor for so long before star trek and then after star trek ended he was so typecast he couldn't get roles there was a period in the 70s where he was living in his truck mm-hmm. kind of thing and so his policy became to say yes to absolutely anything ever offered to him because he just was so desperate for work and that became his like mm-hmm. life uh, career philosophy but yeah you read that book and it becomes clear that like all of his bravado comes from the fact that he has a very low opinion of himself we're done here oh wait well the machine has said that we do have to wrap things up here so let's move into critics choice the part of the show where we discover what the critics thought at the time that this film was released so i've picked out again roger ebert and pauline kale shock upon shocks honestly dave both liked it i think well, pauline kale like, is yeah. I know, but like Pauline Kale usually is the curmudgeon of the two of them, I find. It's so an intelligently written film. There's a lot of meat in it. Roger Ebert gave this three out of four stars, and he summed it up by saying, there is a battle in outer space in this movie, a particularly inept one, that owes more to Captain Video than to state-of-the-art special effects. I always love it when they give us spaceships capable of leaping across the universe and then arm them with weapons so puny that the direct hit merely blows up a few control boards and knocks people off their feet. Somehow, though, I don't much care if the battles aren't that amazing because the story doesn't depend on them. It's about a sacrifice made by Spock, and it draws on the sentiment and audience identification developed over years by the TV series. Perhaps because of that bond, and the sense that an episode may be over, but the Enterprise will carry on, the movie doesn't feel that it needs an ending in a conventional sense. The film closes with the usual Star Trek end narration, all about the ship's mission and its quest and we are obviously being set up for a sequel. You could almost argue that the last few minutes of Star Trek II are a trailer for Star Trek III. But no, that wouldn't He's be right. in the spirit of the Enterprise, would it? I was like, well, you Tangent. actually kind of nailed it. Well, <laughs> you kind of... It's probably a little yeah, sarcastic the there. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. what's, what's funny is he complains about the battle, but I, I prefer the space battle in this movie to so many more recent Well, you're talking about films. the naval warfare, right? There are cannons. Yeah, it's like... Against the sonar's the eye. Beautiful. And what, I, and what I really like about it, it, and maybe it's just because it's models and not CGI, but the ships feel like they have mass. Mm-hmm. They're not, you know, the Enterprise isn't doing barrel rolls that sure. don't make sense for a ship of its size. Yoda right? suddenly like, is doing back handsprings, fighting fucking people in CGI. It, it, not bitter. Exactly, because a CGI thing has no weight. You can make it do whatever yeah. you want. Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah, the ships here have have kind of a sense that they are Slow large. And, yeah. uh, Pauline Kael basically wrote an entire essay on, on this movie. I don't know where it was surprised. published, but it was like gigantic. <laughs> so here's how it, she finishes off, though. Pauline Kael never saw a word count she didn't like. <laughs> well, one or five. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Once you've lowered your guard, Meyer coaxes you to let the characters sneak up on you. He seems to be nudging you sweetly, saying, come on, come on. And he gets you to admit that the TV show made you laugh once or twice. Very quickly, you discover that even if you weren't a Trekkie, you've been fond of this crew. Even if you hardly ever saw them, they took up lodging in your head, they put down roots there. It's almost as if Kirk and the whole bunch had been lying in wait for you. Meyer taps the goodwill you have towards the crew of the Enterprise by showing you the goodwill they have towards one another. The pieces of the story fit together so beautifully that eventually he has you wrapped up in the foolishness. By the end, all the large, sappy, and satisfying emotions get to you. You're part of the crew, accepting as they do, that the one whose coffin has landed on a newly created planet will begin a new life. Maybe you don't believe it, exactly, but you feel it. And you feel the power of this kind of thinking to inspire belief. And if the picture doesn't convince you that death can be transcended, 
it does demonstrate that silliness can be. If William Shatner can go beyond himself, if he can give the performance he does in his grief-stricken scenes, who can doubt miracles? So that's how she, I thought that's just a lovely little bit of writing. I think she's on, hits the nail on the head with that. Mm -hmm. I think, I think the thing about Star Trek, uh, no matter which show it is, um, if you're a fan of that iteration, right? If you're a Deep Space Nine fan or a Voyager, whatever version you like the best, I think what makes Star Trek work is not how does warp drive work mm -hmm. or what's on deck 12 of the Enterprise or, you know, how does Klingon anatomy work or any of that shit. It's the characters. Right. And, you know, people love Spock. People love Seven of Nine. People love Quark. Like, that's, that's the thing that makes the shows run. And if yeah. the characters aren't good, then the show fails. You, you brought up when they made the first one that they wanted to make a Star Wars and they thought about CGI. I think the reason why Star Wars transcends films in a way is because it's about hope. It's not about Jedis and shit. It's about this mm -hmm. kid who actually, in spite of losing a large battle, kind of like, it's happy, right? You, you're left with these mm -hmm. heroes and they're like, yeah, maybe we can. And this movie does that. It's, it's a fascinating thing where no matter how much uh, tribulations, they actually, uh, you're kind of like hopeful that they're going to be okay. And so it's a beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah. I love that. It's amazing that this movie does the job of killing Spock, getting you to really feel that loss and end with that hopeful ending that suggests he's going to be mm -hmm. back, but in a way that doesn't cheapen the rest, yeah, the, the death scene. Yeah. That's yeah, right. Because yeah. it's not like he the most recent, you know, that right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's the thing. We know he's going to come back, but we save it for the next movie. And indeed, the the search for Spock. You know, that movie has a very convoluted plot. But suffice to say that we don't actually really get Leonard Nimoy Spock back until like the last shot of that movie. And so it's not like you know Rise of Skywalker where we're told that Chewbacca has died. And then we kind of like, we see his shuttle blow up and then we turn and he's standing right there and we go, Oh, actually you were fine. The whole like time. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. They don't, they don't cheapen it. Does this hold up? And is it still culturally relevant? What do we say? Yes. I mean, I think it holds up for sure. Yeah, for sure. I don't know about cultural relevancy, I think it's, it's, but I think it's a, because it's so a piece of entertainment. It holds up. Yeah. It's it definitely holds up. I just think, because it's so it's so infused in modern track. Yeah. It like it, like you said, it always seems like everything is drawing from this more than anything else. I think that's where you'll we'll see it. But definitely still holds up as entertainment. That's for sure. I I would say that you know if the thing about those modern efforts though is like Star Trek Nemesis is trying to well Star Trek First Contact is kind of like this in that it's a sequel to a episode of Next Gen and it's about revenge and things like that. First Contact's a good movie. Star Trek Nemesis is trying to do this. It's bad. The Eric Bana. J.J. Abrams' Star Trek movie is trying to do this. It's bad. Star Trek Into, Into Darkness is really trying to do this. Mm -hmm. It's quite bad. And I think that it's such a mistake for franchises to do that where they're trying to like piggyback off some glory golden age. Because if I'm, whether I'm a Trekkie or not, Wrath of Khan still exists. So if I have the choice of Star Trek movies to watch, and my choices are like, I could watch Wrath of Khan or I could watch this newer movie that is a ripoff. Yeah, a worse version of that watch, story. I can, yeah. I can just watch Wrath of Khan. I live in a world where Netflix exists. I can just watch Wrath of Khan if I want to. And I think it's such a mistake when, when these big franchises try to just repeat their past glory because I think the number one thing, if you're doing franchise stuff or you're, or you're making movies like that is don't make a movie that reminds me of a better movie I could be watching instead. Exactly. Disney. Yeah. 
Right. Exactly. Like, like let, it, let your movie stand on its own two feet. Yeah. Well, we do need to rate this film, but before we do, uh, that is what Dave, Ben, and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also do upload videos onto our YouTube channel discussing the films that we talk about each week. If you want to see the entire list of films that we've watched and the ratings that we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page. That's letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Uh, I always feel bad when we have guests on uh, on the show, but Ben, if you were to rate this film out of five, what would you give Wrath of Khan? Uh, Wrath of Khan is a is a five out of five. It's a, it's an easy five out of five. Yeah. Dave, what would you give Wrath of Khan? I'm going to go with a four and a half, but uh, I mean, it's, a, it's very good. And then people should watch it. If you like sci-fi, you like fantasy, and you like movies that make you think, or ships, mm-hmm. or battles, or acting. Yeah, it's good. I, it's yeah, I, I always waver here too. I'm going to give it a 4.5 as well. I think on another day, I probably would rate it a 5. It just depends on when you catch me. Regardless, I just don't like that, is going, that is going to, yeah. that is going to tie with First Blood. So Dave, do you think this is better or worse uh, than First that's Blood? That's a tough one. Very different movie, I know. of course. But. I, I feel like just because we watched the two of them together, I would still put First Blood. Oh man, I don't know, Kyle. What, what do you have an intuition? They're they're too I, different. I, I guess I, it, it just comes down to my enjoyment. I enjoy Rathacon better than yeah, I. It's enjoy, more fun, even though I think they're both great. I know. All right, we can put it above. Alice, okay. Alice won't forgive us. But, this is uh, this is when we get uh, <laughs> letters in potentially because that means entering our list at the number three position mm. <laughs> is Star Trek Two, right underneath Das Boot, right above First Blood, is where that is going to go here into our list. Weirdly similar to Das Boot. I was going to say two, in, yeah, two interesting. movies. Hmm. Let's just push this button here and see what we're going to be watching here next week. Well, we're going to continue on with our sequels. We've been uh, in a run of sequels here. We're going to be watching Airplane 2, Sweet. the sequel. Shatner. Which has, which also Shatner. has Shatner. Shatner in it. I just realized that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Shatner in it. Not that we've seen right, it well, yet. But, yeah. No. But uh, that's what we get uh, next week. So um, we'll get to see Shatner when he's not tired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Peak Shatner. Is it weird if I have a boner now?